where we had gone before. Recording okay. in progress. We are live. Okay, thank you. All right, I'd like to welcome everyone to the City of Alameda Planning Board meeting for Monday, March 14th, 2022. Uh, we'll start with the flag salute. Alan, could you lead us, please? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. Um, could we have the roll call, please? Who 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 will be doing the roll call? I, uh, I know Alan is not available. I guess Alan's out tonight. He wasn't feeling well, so I'm gonna. I'll I'll try to fill uh, his shoes. Uh, uh, Board Member Curtis? Here. Board Member Ruiz? Here. Board Member Rothenberg? Here. Board Member Teague? Here. And President Sahaba? Present. So you have a quorum. Okay. Um, Or communication progress. Anyone may address the board on a topic not on the agenda under this item by raising your hand. Uh, you'll have three minutes to speak. Uh, do we have any hands raised to speak on this? Uh, we do not at this time. Okay, great. All right, we'll close that section of the meeting. Um, nothing on the consent calendar. Move on to the regular agenda items. So tonight we're gonna to have a public hearing to review and comment on the general plan and housing element annual re report and the draft housing element update with zoning code amendments uh, related to R1 through R6 residential zoning districts and zoning code amendments related to design review exemptions as required by state law, streamline review of special needs housing projects. Uh, Andrew, you're going to give us a presentation. Yes, I will um, present tonight's item. It is a workshop and public hearing. Uh, let me just see if I can share my screen very quickly here. Oops, let's see, we're not in the right place. Just bear with me a second. Can you see my screen? Yeah. Yes. All right, great. Um, so um, my name is Andrew Thomas, Planning Director, City of Alameda. Um, what we have for you tonight is both a public hearing to review and comment on the general plan annual report. Um, so we're looking for your review and comment on this document before we send it off to the state. It's a requirement of state law that we submit an annual report on our general plan every year. Um, this is this workshop. This is also a workshop on our ongoing effort to update our housing element for the sixth cycle. And we're presenting some draft zoning amendments uh, for you tonight. Um, as I said, the annual report is attached. Um, it is required. We submit an annual report every year uh, to the Housing and Community Development Department for the state of California. It is required under state government code that we do this. Um, 
what the annual report does, the purpose of the annual report is to, to provide an opportunity every year for the city to um, consider how it's doing in terms of implementing its general plan. And also a very important piece of state law is the submittal of a detailed um, housing report to the state. Um, what this annual report does is sort of summarizes the um, results of that review. Um, just very briefly, um, what this annual report does is it um, documents and highlights the fact that the planning board and city council in January of this year finished a three-year effort to update the citywide general plan. Uh, first time in 30 years, the general plan has been updated. So that's a major accomplishment. Um, and this annual report also talks about the housing element update, which is currently under review or currently in progress um, underway with the planning board. And the planning board has dedicated a lot of time to the housing element update. And we have a whole schedule, which I'll, um, I'll summarize later in this presentation for the housing element update. Um, so essentially we're reporting to the state where we're at, what we're doing, what we're working on. Um, the other I think important highlight that is you just wanted to bring to the attention of the any of members of the public who may be watching. We also in this annual report talk a little bit about how we're doing on our what's called the fifth cycle. So our current housing element, not the one we're updating for the next eight years, but how are we doing on this housing element, um, the current eight year cycle, which we're just coming to the end of. Um, the good news, um, we're going to meet our arena. Um, our arena for the fifth cycle was 1,725 units. Um, we're going to exceed that production. So the good news is the city of Alameda has um, produced the amount of housing in the fifth cycle that we said we would produce. So that's great. Um, the uh, less good news is that um, we're not meeting our affordable housing needs in that effort. Um, we are producing housing, um, which is excellent. Um, but if you compare the um, amount of housing and the types of housing that we are um, producing here in Alameda relative to the need or the projected need um, for the fifth cycle, um, we're falling short on the affordable housing. Um, that's a reflection of land values, construction costs here in, in the Bay Area. Um, and, and, and the simple fact that we under our local regulations and under state law, we are limited to the number of a deed restricted affordable housing units that we can require every private sector developer to, to develop, to uh, produce um, citywide. We have a 15% requirement. Every project must have 15% deed restricted affordable housing. At Alameda Point, we require 25%. If you look at what is the need for affordable housing, um, as, as documented in the fifth cycle arena, it's more like 50%. So it's not surprising that we're falling short. Um, no city in the Bay Area that I'm aware of is meeting their affordable housing need. Um, we're also in the midst of a series of zoning amendments um, for our up, upcoming six cycle housing element. The, house, the planning board has been having public workshops pretty much twice a month since January, just looking at these zoning amendments. So that um, will be necessary for us to meet our arena in the upcoming cycle and address fair housing laws. Um, 
for the benefit of the public and the planning board, I thought it'd be helpful to just give everybody um, a sense of the schedule, the game plan for 2022. So under state law, we have to get our housing element and our zoning in place. Um, and, I, and, and the planning board has been working hard over January and February and March doing these zoning updates, but I wanted to just sort of outline how this is all gonna fit together over the next nine months. We, while the planning board has been working through the various zoning proposals, and you'll be doing that again tonight um, with the residential districts, we have been working, staff and the consultant team have been pulling together the final draft of the housing element uh, with the goal of, of uh, putting that draft housing element with all the required appendices, all the required information um, out for a 30-day public review, starting hopefully on April 1st. Um, that will be followed by public hearings and workshops on that draft housing element with the planning board and city council in May. So the way we think of this is this is our best draft housing element in terms of meeting all the state requirements, showing how we're gonna meet our 5,300 housing units and show how we're gonna address fair housing laws in Alameda. Um, then in May, we will send it to HCD. They have 90 days to review it. This whole process is outlined in, in state government code. So in May and July, the state of California will be reviewing our draft housing element. And, and they will be sending us comments on that draft housing element, telling us the kinds of things that aren't that, that they don't believe we've met the requirements on or other information that they will need before they can certify it. So they will be reviewing it essentially in the early part of the summer, May through July. During that period, while we're waiting for their review on the housing element, um, staff will bring back the zoning amendments that the planning board has been working on all this year. You've looked at this, the shopping center overlay district for multifamily housing and shopping centers. You've looked at the first draft of the Park and Webster Street up zoning. Tonight, you're gonna to be looking at the residential zoning. Um, so we have been developing this draft package of amendments that will be necessary for our housing element. The planning board has been reviewing it, commenting on it. While HCD is reviewing the housing element, we will come back to the planning board during that period with the whole package um, so that you, the planning board and the community can continue to sort of fine tune that package of amendments um, uh, during that period. Then in July or August, we'll hear back from HCD. We will put our work on the housing, on the zoning amendments to the side and we will focus entirely on the HCD comments about our housing element. Um, and over those next two months, hopefully we will be put ourselves in the position where the planning board can consider the HCD comments, make the necessary changes to the housing element, and if all goes well, recommend that amended housing element to the city council um, in October with the city, and oh, and with the necessary zoning amendments that you've finalized in May through July. 
Um, so that planning board will be transmitting the entire package, housing element plus zoning amendments to council. Hopefully it all goes well in October and then the council can make its final decisions in November or December of this calendar year. Um, where are we at on our uh, housing element update? Um, it's There's really two parts to the housing element update. There's the need to re meet the regional housing needs allocation, which is a sort of mathematical exercise, a zoning exercise to get to the 5,353 units. And then there's the fair housing aspect of housing, um, of housing element law. A um, couple things I just wanted to sort of um, uh, brief everyone on, as most people now know, our arena is 5,353. HCD publishes guidelines for our cities in California and they recommend a 15% to 30% buffer. This is to avoid the situation where you might have a site that you anticipated it would do a certain number of units and then it turns out it doesn't. This puts us in what's called a no net loss problem. So they recommend to avoid that a 15 to 30%. Um, what that means for us is that when we submit a housing element to the state, we should probably be in that range with a 15 to 30% buffer. That means our effectively we're planning for somewhere between 6,100 and 6,900 housing units. Um, the, where we're at today, um, just big picture. Uh, we've got about 2,100 units, which are, we can, um, rely on in various projects that have already been approved or will be approved in on lands that are already zoned for housing in Alameda. So the draft housing element lists what those 10 projects are. Um, we have plans to build 1,489 units during the arena period at Alameda Point. With the benefit of the draft zoning overlay that the planning board discussed in January, which allows for multifamily housing on shopping centers, we are hoping to have be able to count approximately 1,200 new housing units over the next eight years in our shopping centers, which would benefit from that overlay zoning district. We're projecting approximately 300 units on Park Street and Webster Street. Um, if the council approves the CC zoning amendments that the planning board discussed last month, or some version of that. It'll be coming back to the planning board in this, in this late spring, early summer for final, for fine tuning of all these overlays districts. Um, we've identified three sites in the Northern waterfront that we think we can rezone, which would accommodate approximately 250 units. On top of that, we have a pretty successful, I would say very successful accessory dwelling unit program here in Alameda. We adopted that program in 2018, 2017 really, um, really removed the governmental constraints, removed the zoning constraints to building ADUs in Alameda. Prior to those actions, uh, the city of Alameda was doing about one accessory dwelling unit every four years. Since those zoning changes in 2017, 2018, our production has increased every single year from basically zero a year to about 15 to a year to 20 to a year. In 2021, we had our highest year, which was 78 units. 
we need to project what we will do over the next eight years. And this is, you, you received some correspondence on this issue from AAPS and ACT. Um, this is something you know, worth discussing. Um, uh, we have conservatively projected 60 per year over the next eight years. I think there is an, uh, a good argument that we can push that number up. We've been progressing upward every year um, last year we were at 78. So the idea of saying, hey, let's let's project seven, at least 78 for every year going forward, um, I think is certainly worth discussing. On the other hand, we've also um, projected that we would get about nine units per year as a result of the changes that the council recently approved as part of SB9. Um, I'm a little nervous about that projection um, because we haven't had a single application yet. So I think, you know, when HCD sees our housing element and they see that we're projecting nine per year, they're going to ask for some kind of evidence that we think we can get nine a year. And um, as of today, we don't have a single application, which makes me a little nervous about the nine. So I think we might be a little low on the 60 per year for eight for ADUs. I think we might be a little high on the projection for SB9. Um, that gets us to 5,891 units. If we're gonna go between 15 and 30% buffer, we have to get that number up. Um, and this is really what I think we're gonna be discussing a little bit tonight because there's over 1200 acres of land which is comprised within our residential zoning districts. It's our biggest area of land that we've talked about yet. Um, can we induce 30 to 65 units per year within those areas, the residential districts um, to get us into the 15 to 30%? Um, bonus. Okay. Um, the other big issue that we're constantly thinking about is fair housing. Um, new, really a new emphasis on fair housing, breaking down barriers, um, and really thinking about where we are putting new housing, not just in low opportunity areas, but also high opportunity areas, areas with um, which might have better services, better um, uh, property values, those kinds of things. This is a concept that's embedded in state law and they provide the map. This is the map of Alameda. And as you can see, what HCD has determined is that the high opportunity areas are high and, and, um, and good opportunity areas are mostly in East and, and, and South Alameda. Lower opportunities are along the no Northern waterfront and Alameda Point. Of course, this poses a little bit of an issue for the city of Alameda because most of our land is in the northern waterfront and at Alameda Point. So what we are, we are constantly thinking about the fact that most of our projects, those 2,000 units, the 1,400 Alameda Point, those are all in low opportunity areas or lower opportunity areas. And a couple of our shopping centers are in the dark blue, so that will help a lot. Parts of Park Street are in the dark blue, so that'll help a little bit, and the medium blue, so that will help us a little bit. But if you look at the map of our residential districts, you see that they really straddle both the high and the low opportunity areas. So when we're talking about zoning and we're talking about changes to, to the residential district zoning, it also plays an important role in this, this discussion of fair housing and where we're locating opportunities for new housing. What the state is looking for is to make sure that what we're not doing is 
protecting high opportunity areas from new housing. So um, moving on to the specific zoning um, proposals that we have on the table tonight. Um, the first deal with state requirements around special needs housing. Um, what we have in your packet is we have proposed zoning amendments to deal with these new state requirements. They start with changes to definitions. The um, state identifies specific kinds of housing that we must accommodate. Um, so in some cases, we don't even have definitions of those uses in our, in our, in our zoning code, um, or we have outdated ones. So we have recommended a series of changes to AMC 30-2, which is our section on definitions. Then um, the key ones that we need to think about in terms of Alameda. On some of the, on some of the special needs housing types mandated under state law, we're in good shape supportive and transitional housing, for example. We've done a good job. We fixed that back in 2012. Um, there are some other areas where that we still have a little bit of work to do. Um, those include shared living. So um, our zoning code is a little um, uneven on the way it deals with this. Under state law, we need to treat shared living the same way we would treat any other kind of residential living. Um, and so we're recommending that we permit that in all zoning districts. Today, the AMC is um, a little spotty in terms of where it allows it and where it doesn't. Um, residential care facilities large. These are for 12 or more. Um, we currently permit by right um, uh, 12 or less in all zoning districts. Um, we think the, the large we will, should permit uh, with the use permit in all zoning districts. The, th the thinking there is the larger facilities have employees, um, the need for um, operational things like deliveries and things like that, which might um, require special conditions. Um, low barrier navigation centers. This is a, something that's defined in state law. We need to add that definition to our local definitions. And we're recommending that we permit it by right in the R6. We don't think that that's even up for discussion. That's what's required under state law um, and that we should allow it with a use permit in the R5. And then finally, warming centers. These are accessory uses. These are things that we've, been, we've treated as accessory uses, um, but we think we should be clear that um, the warming centers are an accessory use and that they would be permitted by right um, wherever, if they're accessory to a, to a permitted use, um, such as a church or a school or something like that in a residential district. Um, I think the more, so as I said, on those last special needs, we have some well, relatively minor changes we need to make to the zoning code. Um, there's not a lot of discretion um, for a lot of those decisions. Um, the other housing type that is called out specifically in state law is multifamily housing. Um, on, in Alameda, we define that as a building with three or more units. Um, we are recommending that we permit that by right in the R3 through R6 zoning districts. These before Measure A, these were our multifamily zoning districts. These zoning districts have a lot of multifamily buildings in them today. Um, we just haven't built any new units in these districts um, in the last 40 years. Um, we're recommending that we keep the R1 basically as is, meaning as amended by the city council 
um, at their last meeting when they adopted the SB9 zoning amendments. And just to remind everyone those, that means on a lot, on an R1 lot today, you can get four units with a lot split as small as 1200 square feet, which is allowed under state law and now under Alameda code. Um, you can do two units on that new 1200 square foot lot. So that's an effective density of 78 dwelling units per acre. In the R2 through six, um, we're recommending that we maintain the height setback lot coverage requirements. So really what we're getting at with this, with this idea here is in the residential districts, let's focus on the urban form, the physical massing of buildings. Um, the R2 through the R6 each have individualized height requirements, individualized setback requirements, individualized lot coverage requirements. Let's keep all of those the same. But let's remove the residential density limit of 21 units to the acre. Um, the, uh, so I'll if, if somebody wants to build a building that meets the height limit, the setback re requirement, the lot coverage um, limit, let's let them build as many units within that building shape and that building form as, as they want. Let's not count how many units go in there and, and set a limit on how many units can be in that building. We need units, so the more the better. Um, let's remove the 20 foot separation between main buildings. Um, there may be a site plan where somebody wants to do a, a second building in the backyard and it makes sense to put it closer than 20 feet. There are uniform building code, California building code separation requirements for health and safety. Um, but let's, let's rely on those. Um, and they're less than 20 feet. And then um, back in February of 2021, the planning board made a recommendation um, to, to reduce the open space requirements in all districts to 120 square feet. Um, we didn't ever got a chance to bring that forward to the city council. So we are bringing that recommendation back and we think it's a good recommendation. Um, and through these zoning changes, we're achieving two things. One, we're dealing with the fair housing issue of where do we allow multifamily housing? Are we currently we prohibit multifamily housing in all of these zoning districts? So we're prohibiting people who cannot afford a single family unit from live from. We're basically saying we're not going to build any more housing. For if you for, if you need that kind of housing, you're not going to find it in our residential districts. Um, with these changes, we would be allowing for multifamily housing, but we're trying to um, maintain the the residential character, the physical form of these of these districts. Um, and in addition, we're trying to get some housing units built. Our accessory dwelling unit program which affects these 1200 acres. We have shown that if you relieve these districts of governmental constraints, of zoning constraints, they will produce some housing. We did it with accessory dwelling units and it was very successful. What we now need to do is see if we can get regular units built in these R2 through R6 districts. Um, we provided in your staff report an alternative approach. Um, this is an approach that a number of people have been talking about. Um, this is the first time we've sort of drawn it up. This is the first time we've tried to put some meat on the bones. Um, this would be a different way of dealing with the multifamily issue in Alameda, um, which is, we're calling this the multifamily overlay district. 
So in this scenario, and what it's shown is it's shown on this diagram with these yellow lines. Hopefully you can see my cursor. The yellow lines are a little hard to see with all the colors on this map, but you can see these two yellow lines. So imagine that outlining an overlay district. So in this, and what's what you see in the background below that overlay district is the current zoning map. And just to orient you, um, these white areas, like I'm pointing here with my cursor um, or down here with the cursor, the white is the R1. R2 is this very, very pale yellow. There's some R2 there. Um, there's some R2 down here. And then this darker orange, R3, R4, R5. So what this overlay district is sort of saying, well, taking a different approach and saying, well, we need to encourage more multifamily housing, but we really wanna put it as close to the good transit as possible. So this black line shows the, the high quality, as we defined it for this exercise, transit corridors, 15 minutes or less, um, transit frequency half hour or less during the weekends. Um, as you can see, it, there's some things about this overlay that uh, might jump out to some people. For example, it doesn't recognize the ferry terminals, um, regional transit facilities, but they didn't meet that frequency standard that we set for ourselves. Under this alternative, instead of allowing multifamily and everything R3 through R6, we would allow permit multifamily by right in this multifamily overlay zone defined by those yellow lines. We would remove the density standard and we would establish a 45 foot height limit within this overlay district. Um, so outside of the district, the overlay district, multifamily would still be prohibited. Residential densities would still be limited to 21 units the acre um, and the height limits in the R2 or R3 areas that are outside of the MF overlay um, would remain the same. Um, so two different ways um, to address the issue of multifamily housing in Alameda. Um, and we're interested in people's reaction to the two different approaches. So um, wrapping up, um, Tonight, this is a workshop. Um, we are interested in any comments, suggestions you have for our annual report. Um, any suggestions, recommendations on the annual report, we will make those changes and then send the report up to the state. We're interested in any adjustments that you would like to recommend to the special needs amendments, dealing with things like low barrier navigation centers, shared housing, that kind of, um, those issues. Um, we described in detail in the staff report what we need there and what we're recommending. If you have any adjustments, please let us know. And then finally, we're interested in how you might want to deal with the um, multifamily options, whether you like the base zoning approach or the overlay approach better. And with that, I think I can stop sharing and make myself available to answer questions. Thank you, Director Thomas, for walking us through that. Um, 
since this is a public workshop. Oh, and I also wanted to mention that um, we should note that board member Cisneros has joined um, during roll call. Um, we, we missed her, so. And can I just, I'm yes. sorry to interrupt. I neglected no, okay. to point out, I also am very lucky to have um, staff member Brian McGuire with us tonight to help me answer questions. Um, our very capable consultant, Heather Coleman is here as well tonight. And of course, um, Selena Chen is here and she's really, all of us have been working on these zoning amendments. So they're all gonna help me answer any questions um, that might come up tonight. That's great. Yeah, it definitely was, looks like a team effort. So we'll, um, before we open it up for public comment, we'll look for board members clarifications or questions um, to what Andrew uh, presented and also what was included in our um, in our agenda. Uh, if you'd like to speak as a board member, just raise your hand. Uh, board member T. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Andrew, for that very thorough and large amount of information. Um, my first question is, what is the impact of net loss? Um, net loss is that if you make, I mean, I know, what it, I know what it means, but if we do it, what happens? What is the repercussions of a net loss? If you approve a project on a site that with less units than you thought, or in a scenario may not be because the city said, Hey, we want less units. It might just be because the owner of the property said, I'm sorry, I don't want to do as many units or I can't do as many units. Um, we have to make it up. So we have to make up the difference with an upzoning somewhere else in town. Within what period of time? I don't know exactly. Um, if you, when you, you have to make the findings for what you're going to do about it, when you make the decision on that project that didn't meet the expectation. Um, okay. It's a little bit evolving situation as well. I mean, yeah. what's, been changing under state law is the importance of the annual report. So um, historically, you just got to get your housing element adopted and then whatever happened, happened over the next eight years. Whereas yeah. now there's new emphasis on the annual report and there are implications in the number of laws for cities who are not meeting their arena. So the idea is to try to just stay, stay in the black. Yeah. But, uh, okay, thanks. I have a question for the city attorney, which is when will the city attorney's office provide us with guidance about whether these changes to the R1, R6 zoning about multifamily and densities, that whether they are required by state law, which overrides our city charter? Are you looking for, I'm not sure that I understand the question. One is, when will the city attorney tell us, yes, if you make this change to R1 to say, or R3, multifamily, no limited density, that is required by state law, which overrides our city charter? Well, we have multiple staff reports um, that are out in the public that describe what state law requires, what's required. Yeah. Yeah, I'm asking for specifically that this action is one that the city attorney says, yes, state law says you have to do that. 
and it's it supersedes our city charter. May I may I jump in just for a second? Sure. I, I think I mean we're going to get a letter from the state of California telling us whether our housing element and our proposed zoning is adequate to meet the requirements of state law. So I mean we can uh, you can ask Andrew, your that attorney isn't, that isn't a legal opinion and there's a big fight going on about what hcd is saying in other cities and i was just asking about our city attorney who's our legal advisor are is the city attorney going to provide us with guidance on this specific topic I think if there's a request for guidance, our office can look into this and provide a confidential memorandum to the planning council. Um, we've, I think that at the direction of the board, we could provide that analysis, but I don't have that this evening. Yeah, that would be, I would really like to have such a thing, please. Otherwise, I will cover my comments in the comment section. Thanks. Thank you, Board Member Teague. Uh, Board Member Rothenberg. Thank you. Thank you, for, uh, Director Thomas, for the, it's needless to say, comprehensive summary of, as uh, Board Member Teague said, of a lot of information and members of the public and the um, and the Planning uh, Preservation Society and the Citizens Task Force. So I had three questions, which I think are fairly brief. So in regard to the Preservation Society letter, um, the first question requested, I, they wrote, requested staff analysis of the impact of proposed upzonings and state density bonus law in built up and historic commercial districts. And they, also, and they also suggested that why not change R1 to R2 and just get it over with. So not in those words exactly. So in regard to those two comments, I wondered if you had addressed that because I thought it was provocative and interesting and it's a good question. And then yeah. I have two other, two other quick questions. Um, I think the, the, the the question around state density bonus law. Absolutely, we've thought about that. We spent a lot of time talking about it. Um, you can't zone around state density bonus law. Like state density bonus law is on top of whatever we decide to do to meet our arena. Two important points. One, the way state law is structured and housing element law is structured, you don't, you can't count state density bonus projects. So you can't, let me put it this way. You can't assume that every project is gonna be a state density bonus project. What the state is gonna do is say, what's your base zoning? How many units does it allow? What does it allow? And we'll decide whether you're in compliance with your arena or not. They're not going to allow us to say, oh, our zoning only allows a hundred units, but every project that we have done do state density bonus. So you should give us a credit for 120 units for every project. They are not, the assumption is you can't count on developers to voluntarily ask for bonuses. Um, um, I think the other thing that, you know, in my conversations with AAPS, um, you know, sort of the staff position is this, we have 10 years of experience with state density bonus in Alameda because of measure A, 
every single project is forced to go through state density bonus process. So we, we're really familiar with it. Um, every major project has used state density bonus. Um, and what we know is this, um, every single project with one exception has gone for the 20% density bonus. This is helpful when we as staff think about this. So if you as the planning board or WABA or AAPS are wondering about what's the effect of state density bonus, if you've got a four story building, if your zoning allows for a four story building, a 20% density bonus, okay, that's potentially one more floor. So that building might go from four to five. If it's a, if you have three stories of residential, a 20% density bonus is going to get you less than one more floor on top of that. So, I mean, that's the way we as staff have been thinking about, well, if we propose we raise the height limits to 45 feet, what about state density bonus? Hmm. Well, if it's a building in a mixed use commercial area and requiring ground floor residential, that means it's going to be three floors of residential on top. If you get a 20% density bonus, it's on the size of the residential. So what would that really mean? Um, so that's that's how we're thinking about density. Well, bonus. I mean, it's a, it seems to me that um, I'm not a developer, but it seems like it's a bit of a conundrum. On one hand, you have state density bonus law, which should incentivize some developments. We've seen that, right? But what he's asking is in a built up and historic commercial district. So you anticipate a certain kind of development along Park and Webster. And it might be uh, commercially feasible for some develop or the, or say the, the development, the Neptune Plaza at the end of Webster Street. However, he's asking the question, if it's invoked, then does it impact the historic character of, of a place, even though it's legally allowable? And you don't have to answer that online necessarily, it's kind of rhetorical, but it puts, it puts the planning team in a, in a fix and it can put the developer in a fix if you have competing priorities of historic fabric and meeting, meeting your, your statutory requirements within the context of a, of a place that has a character to it. And doing both is not, I don't believe it's impossible, but it's a, it's a tricky planning and architectural exercise, right? Isn't that? Abs that's really absolutely right. I mean, we, we, we need to plan our height limits for what we need to do to get to our arena. And we need to acknowledge and understand that if somebody invokes state density bonus, they might be able to, and they may actually um, request a waiver to that height limit and build an extra floor above it. Right, exactly. So the other two quick, quick questions, which you might take, one pertains to option, option one. Um, on page two, there's a reference to the um, California building code separation requirements. So I thought, it, but that wasn't in, it, it wasn't in the first item, it was just in the second one. And so I thought that was interesting. Um, you say in R1, you go through that, but in R2, then you specifically called out the California building code separation requirements. So my question is, we are seeing, we're seeing the um, 
property the separation requirements, the setbacks from the property line, they're going down lower and lower and lower. The California Building Code is is particular about that for certain occupancy classes, but it's really just a fire safety thing. I mean, you could talk about well views and it, it having dealt with that in public projects, it's a fire safety issue. So I you know I had I had a question about why you particularly called out the California Building Code separation requirements for R2 and not R1. And then the last question has to do with the design standards. I actually thought the design standards comments were quite straightforward, except for one with number 17, it, it, it speaks to seismic forces on chimneys. You know what the problem is with chimneys? They're really unsafe. They'll burn you up in a minute. So it, had you considered saying seismic and fire safety purposes, because I have an old, I have a couple of chimneys here, they're all furred up, but I couldn't even afford to bring them up to fire safety standards because if I put a fire in there, the whole house is gonna burn down in my 1894 house. So those were the last two questions. And thank you for the really excellent materials as usual. Well, thank you, board member Rothenberg. I mean, just for the, you know, just for the public and anyone who might be a little bit confused, the the separation requirement that we're proposing to eliminate and just rely on the building code is for when you have two main buildings on one parcel. So we're different than a setback requirement, which is how close can you build your building to the property line and your neighbor. This is about oh, you, right. you want to okay. build a building on your property and you already have a building on your property. How, how close can they be? The building code sets fire right. safety distance requirements. Right. Exactly. Our zoning code says, well, no, we want even more than that. We want 20 feet between buildings on the same residential property. From our perspective, that is a constraint on people's ability to do that because we also have setback requirements, parcels in Alameda are relatively small. And we also, in our experience, Alameda property owners are pretty good about figuring out where the best places to set their buildings are. Mm-hmm. In some cases, a nice separation works out really well because you can put a communal garden or something between the two or a courtyard between the two houses. In other cases, it might make more sense to cluster the houses, the two buildings and have a bigger space. But doesn't outside. that apply to R1 and R1? Because R1 yeah. can be, you, you can develop uh, ADUs and 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 do lot, lot line splits and everything on yeah. R1s as well as R2s, right? I think that's I think that's a good comment. We didn't really think about that on the zoning team. I think we should think about that. Like this, that the if the 20-foot separation requirement doesn't work for R2 through R6, it probably doesn't work for R1 either. Um, and then your comments about the the fire and building code, seismic code for the chimneys is uh, duly noted. I think Thanks. it's a really a good Thanks. idea. We hadn't thought about it. Thank you, thank you. Thanks, everyone. Board member Rothenberg and uh, welcome board member Hahn as well. See you joined yeah, late. Thank you. Okay. Um, Vice President Ruiz. Director Thomas, thank you again for the thorough presentation. And yes, I echo all my fellow board members' sentiments. That's a lot of information to digest. Um, so I have three questions and I want to go from macro to micro. Um, first question, I echo um, board member Teague's comment regarding um, 
what we're proposing on multifamily um, overlay zone, what not multi, all our multifamily changes and the references that we're reviewing to, to, tonight and how it relates to Article 26. This, we need, really need a legal reading and the um, confirmation that state law trumps local ordinances. This is not just for us, but it's also for general public because we're seeing a lot of um, comments and circulation saying, what the staff is recommending is against the or perceived conflict with our um, Article 26. So we need to address that head on to kind of avoid further misinformation that's a flying out there. You know, more comments coming back, oh, what's, what we're doing is against Article 26. We just really need to say, okay, which, which law has uh, trumps the other laws? And then if so, I actually would like to push our attorney's office a little bit further to perhaps maybe put a bullet point under Article 26 saying this, this um, article has been superseded by XYZ. Um, so we know that there's records of why we are doing this. Um, then that's just, you know, I would like to ask you to kind of seriously consider that. And second question I have is, um, again, for the benefit of the public, could you please tell us what the repercussions of not complying with the RENA? I know in the past, um, and I know what they are because you know, I have corresponded with um, um, Alan, Alan before, but I just want you, you to please reiterate that for, for, for the benefit of the public. Yes, um, thank you, uh, board member. Um, so it's a state law that you bring your housing element into compliance with um, state requirements to meet your regional housing need and fair housing. So if we fail to do it, meaning the city council does not adopt a housing element, which is acceptable to HCD. So that's why we're sending it and why it's required that every city send their draft to HCD so we can find out what the state thinks about it. And we know exactly what the state will or will not do if we, if we don't approve it or do approve it. Um, if we don't approve a certifiable housing element, um, we immediately become out of compliance with state law. If you're out of compliance, if your general plan is out of compliance with state law, then you can't make land use decisions. As the planning board knows, every time you approve a variance, every time you approve a um, development plan, every time you approve every single project, you are making a finding. It's in compliance with our general plan. If a city does not have a compliant general plan, then you can't make that finding because you don't know whether it's in compliance with your general plan because your general plan is not in compliance with state law. Um, so um, a couple things happen. You go out of compliance. Number, two, number one, city of Alameda immediately is disqualified from a whole slew of state funding opportunities for parks, for affordable housing, for roads, for other things. Um, we historically have got, we got, for example, Gene Sweeney Park, $2 million grant from the state of California. If we didn't have a certified housing element when we applied for that, we couldn't have even applied. So we immediately start losing state grants. 
Number two, we should be we should just plan on being sued immediately. We almost got sued in 2012. Um, people are watching. We've already been got public records requests for all our housing element documents that we've produced. Um, everyone is watching. Um, what happens when you get sued? Um, you immediately start paying attorney's fees um, to defend yourself. You are going into court arguing that somehow the city of Alameda doesn't have to comply with state law because the state has already said that your housing element is not compliance. Um, state law has been structured such that you will start, as a city, you will start paying fines for being out of compliance. And when you lose in court, which you will, you will be paying your own attorney fees plus the attorney fees for the people who sued you. One more incentive for people to sue you. Once you're out of compliance with state law, once the state has already said you are out of compliance with state law, pretty easy lawsuit to bring against a city. Um, so, and ultimately, when a judge determines that you are out of compliance with state law, when the judge determines that you do not have a compliant housing element, the judge says you can't make land use decisions anymore. So the question is, well, what happens to everybody who needs a building permit? What happens to every project that needs to get approval? It goes to the judge and the judge decides. The planning board doesn't decide anymore. The judge automatically approves any affordable housing project um, and the judge will decide which building permits it wants to let through the process um, because until you have adopted a housing element, which is certified by the state, you don't have a valid housing element. So the repercussions of non-compliance are severe, expensive, and painful. Thank you. And I know that because this is different than the past, because in the past, you know, HCD has not have right. much teeth in their re requirements arena. So I really appreciate you this re reiterating this to everyone um, listening and and also for the record as well. So we can understand the importance of getting a housing elements, uh, uh, you know, um, acting on the certifiable housing element. And the last question I agree, I think you briefly touched upon earlier already. The um, I, same thing, I questioned the um, 60 unit um, accessory dwelling unit count. And yeah, I think we should, I actually don't know where that 60 units came from either. Yeah. And so if you touch upon that already, so later on we can discuss if that number should be changed. Yeah, I think it's, look, I, th I think that's something we absolutely um, could adjust. Let me just very quickly. So it's, I forget the exact numbers. I think it's in the housing, in the staff report, but we basically went, you know, we've been jumping up every year. So our trend is, is, is up. It was like 20 units, then it was, 40 units, then it was 60 units, and I think last year was 78. So we have a trend that's going up. Um, what our housing consultants have said, and they've been, they have been, and HCD guidance says you can use trends. Um, what our housing consultant says, yeah, well, HCD guidance says you can use trends, but HCD actual actions, what they do with every city is they say, just give us the average for your last three years. So the 60 represents roughly an average of the last three years. I do believe though, that we could make the case when we submit our housing element to HCD, that look, our trend is straight up. You should give us, we believe that 
for the next eight years, every year will be right around 78 units or last year, not, we don't see it dropping down for the next day at any point during the next eight years. What that gets us, that's an extra 18 units a year. Basically that adds about 144 units to our total. Um, you know, I think the other thing that uh, has been on my mind, you know, we've, we've been tracking this year, this month, January, February, if we submit our housing element to HCD in, in May or June, mm -hmm. and we can say, hey, just look at the first five months of 2022. We're on track to do another great year of 78 units or more. Then I think HCD might say, you know what? You're right. We're going to give you credit for 78 units. Um, so, so are we on track? How are we uh, it's a little early to say. It's okay. a little early to say. Um, we're we're going to be close. I, I mean, just based on January and February, we're 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 going to be very close to 78. But it's early yet. Okay. All right. Thank you. Last, just lastly, on the on the um, on the measure issue, state law is clear. Just because you have a local ballot measure that says you can't meet the arena doesn't mean you don't have to meet the arena. That, I mean, state law has covered this issue I, I, of local yes. cities passing ordinances or having, you know, citizen initiatives that set unit caps, that set growth caps. I mean, this is Alameda is not the only city that's. Oh, yeah, I know. I know. Uh, it's... Yep. I just want to make the public aware. I understand. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Let's go to board member Curtis. Thank you, President Sahaba. Uh, first, I want to say that that you guys, the planning staff, has done a really good job in working through a lot of tough issues and and coming up with some good solutions. Uh, the second thing I want to say is that we've gotten caught up, in my opinion, in a, in a political quagmire where we've been, been instructed to build a, a maximum this time of, of, of 6,900 units in a town that doesn't have the infrastructure to be able to support the 6,900 units. You know, I, I sound like a broken record each time that we get into this, but I have watched in the last couple of weeks, the traffic during the rush hours where the traffic on Otis Drive is backed up to the bridge um, going going west and backed up halfway to Grand Street going the other direction with the existing building. Imagine another 8,000 cars being involved. And I know that, that, you're, they, that they're expected to use public transportation and I know that we have a limit on parking, but also I've watched emergency vehicles coming out of the, the um, out of the fire station at at um, Ensenel and, and Park Street and tried to see them go through traffic. Now our building codes protect the buildings. The buildings and fires in the buildings are pretty well taken care of. But what about the people with heart attacks? What about the people with strokes where time is really of the essence for an emergency vehicle to get there? And if they have these restrictions now, what's it gonna be like after this thing is built out? I mean, we, we look at look at the traffic should not be a mitigating factor because the state directs that. But the reality is that we've never really done a true study of the impact of the traffic that's going to be generated on emergency vehicles, which is a safety issue. And as a safety issue, it's something that should be presented to the state 
as as something that is a material significance in terms of the number of units that we build because we can't unbuild them and we can't get rid of the traffic and short of eminent domain raising houses on these corridors to get wider corridors to get to these developments um we're not going to build any bridges so it's only the intra alameda stuff that can be fixed after this is done and the intra alameda stuff can only be fixed with eminent domain and widening roads once this is built so my only point is that maybe we should study a little bit harder the impacts of traffic on emergency vehicles before we put the 60 units 50 units 40 units and 30 units going up there on, on an infrastructure that can't handle it. And, you know, I, I sound like Kenny Penny, but the sky's not falling, but it is, in my mind, a significant problem, especially for people who need emergency care. That's, um, that's my observation. Thanks. Oh. The question was, this is a preamble to a question. The question was, have we done any studies of what emergency vehicle traffic is going to be and how they're going to get to these places during during the hour, daylight hours with the traffic that's going to be on the road? Because that's a material study that should be done. We, um, there's just real quick answer to your last question. Um, what we have been doing with the fire department and with the police department as we look at roads, as we look at redesigning roads in Alameda, which we're doing in Alameda to deal with Vision Zero, to deal with transit access. I mean, roads, road design is changing citywide as well, is how is a fire truck going to get past a row? We're asking ourselves the question, how is a fire truck or an emergency vehicle going to get through this intersection if it's backed up? So we're really thinking about um, ways in which a fire truck can get past congestion. We have not done the kind of study that I think you're describing, which is how much congestion will there be in 20 years? Um, and um, will a fire truck be able to get past that congestion with its sirens going and everything? Um, two reasons, one is because housing and state law doesn't say that if we make a finding that there's a hazard a safety issue that that we can then neglect to meet our regional housing need i mean what state law is structured is well if there's other constraints that you need to deal with city then you need to deal with that um so you know that's kind of the approach we've been looking at is making sure in how we design roads and how we design projects that the fire department is confident that they can get through even if the road is congested, congested, you know, as you know, a fire truck will go down the opposite lane of traffic. If it needs to, they will just cross the cross the yellow line and go into the other into the other lane of traffic, you know, head on with the other traffic if necessary, or they'll move off to the side. I see the traffic going both directions. Both directions are jammed. Number one, and it's eight years, not twenty years. In eight years we're going to have those cars on the road. Thanks. Thank you, Board Member Curtis, Board Member Ciceros. Uh, thank you so much um, for the presentation. Um, I, switching subjects a little bit and um, had a question about the annual report. It reminded me of the conversation at the last meeting um, 
related to inclusionary zoning and from the report, the findings are that it's not uh, prohibitive and um, not curbing housing in Alameda, but uh, at the same time, we, we had um, feasibility issues on the base. And I think you, uh, or you and the staff uh, recommended a goal, a quantifiable goal of 50% affordable housing. Um, from on the base from 25%. So I was curious um, about just revisiting that a little bit. Uh, and if there's been, you know, I'd be interested in like, if we could do like a nexus study just to like look more into that feasibility because you sounded pretty confident <laughs> when you explained last time around um, how Alameda how, uh, could potentially work towards that goal. But I just wanted to, circle back on that based on what was in the report. Yeah, so um, just quickly, I think what we were talking about is this. 15% um, is our citywide requirement. Um, every project over the last 18, 19 years has provided that 15%. Um, and um, that's been a standard requirement in Alameda. And, and, over, and we met our arena, or we're meeting our arena now in Alameda for the last cycle. So um, in 20 years of experience, I think we can confidently say that housing gets built in Alameda with a 15% requirement. Um, the, um, at Alameda Point, we require 25%. And we, that is a bigger lift for a private development company. And it's also a bigger lift at Alameda Point because the private development company is also, we're also asking them to build all new infrastructure. So it, that is why we're having feasibility issues at Alameda Point in particular. Um, it's, the, it's the state and the regional housing need um, process that determine that not only do we need 5,300 units in Alameda over the next eight years to meet our you know, housing need, but to really meet the need, 50% of it needs to be affordable to lower income households. So that's a reflection. And I think what the arena is saying is, you know, that's the real need. That's the real scope of this problem. The 5,300 units is probably the easy part. I mean, we have the land for that. We know we have the land for that. The question is how are we gonna even, how close can we get to trying to address the affordable need? We do our 15%. We do our 25% Alameda Point. And I think what's, it, what's interesting is when you think about Alameda Point, which is the largest single sort of mass of land in Alameda that's potentially available for housing, not just during the next eight years, but over the next 20, 30 years in Alameda. And the city owns it or will be owning it all. So that's an incredible, that's an incredible opportunity. Wait, the public already owns the land. We don't have to go out and buy it. We already own it. So how can we start structuring how we develop that land in a way that we might get more than 25%? Right now, we're basically, as a city, we're saying private development, we need you to pay for everything. Everything, we need you to build all the infrastructure with private capital. We need you to fund the the 25% um, with your private capital. 
Oh, and by the way, we also want you to build us a ferry terminal with your private capital. Oh, and we want you to build us, you know, I think infrastructure in particular, which is a huge financial obligation. And you think about what's going on at the, at the national level with, you know, the Biden administration, money for infrastructure. If the city of Alameda were in the position to say, hey, we have the land already. Can we go get some of that federal money for infrastructure? Now the conversation with the private sector developer is a little bit different. Oh, we can give you the land for free and we can, we can provide the infrastructure or a big chunk of the infrastructure for you. We want, now puts the city in the position of sort of saying, yeah, 25%, we want more than 25%. We wanna get, you know, that's our priority. What can you do to help us meet this really? Because that's where the housing need is. Um, so that, that's kind of the idea. Like, how can we take advantage of the opportunity? We already own a lot of land going forward at Alameda Point. And are there ways that we can shift the burden on the private capital so that we actually get more affordable housing built? Obviously, the other big thing that would be a huge help. I mean, we bring in nonprofits to build affordable housing at Alameda Point and citywide. We get our private developers to build, get the site ready for them, give them the land for free, build the infrastructure for them, and give them a financial subsidy for each unit because the, the nonprofit housing developer who's building affordable housing in Alameda, you know, even after they go after the tax credits and all the, and what little public money is available to build affordable housing, we still need a contribution, a major financial contribution from the private sector for every single affordable unit. Um, if, <clears throat> if our city or our state or our federal government start putting more money into affordable housing, we could get a lot more affordable housing built in Alameda. So it's a really tough problem. And I think with the approach that our housing element takes is we know we need to get 5,300 units, we can get there. We think we can get there. It's gonna be a heavy lift, but we think we can get there. How we get 50% of that to be affordable? Now that, that is a really tough problem. And we as a city wanna to commit to doing whatever we can to getting as close as we can to that number. In our last arena, we, we met our 1,700, but we didn't come close to the 50% affordable. That's helpful. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Board Member Hall. Yep. Thank you very much. Again, I apologize for coming to the meeting late, um, but I, I probably I missed your presentation. Andrew probably might have answered some of the questions. I apologize if I'm asking questions that you covered in your presentation or the other board members already asked. I did review a lot of the, the many letters that were submitted the last couple of days commenting on, uh, on the proposed zoning questions. Anyway, I got a, a couple of different categories of question. I'll start off with uh, the questions about option two, option one and option two. Option two is the, the overlay district. And I'm trying to figure out the rationale and the benefits of the overlay district. So. A couple of questions. One, I know the overlay district does not have a, a density cap. Uh, in your annual report, it, it kind of mentions that the R3 through R6 
proposing like a 30, 40, 50, 60 dwelling units per acre. But I didn't see a um, density uh, proposal in the base districts for those R3 to R6. So I'm trying to figure out what is, is there a difference between, uh, for density between option two and what the base zoning districts say? Um, I'm, first of all, thank you for that question. Um, you have revealed a mistake in the staff work, which I take full, <laughs> which I take full responsibility for. Uh, the annual report was not updated and we need to fix that. Um, we were thinking, and the annual report talks about it on page, um, it's on page six of the annual report, this idea of let's raise the residential density from you know 30 units the acre in the R3, 40 units the R4, mm -hmm. 50 in the R5, 60 in the R6. That was an initial staff kind of thought. We then continued to develop the proposal, which is actually attached in the packet with the zoning amendments. And you're right, it's not in there. What we finally published for the base zoning and for the MF overlay approach is let's just get rid of the density standards entirely. And it just keeps coming back to this concept that we've talked about with the planning board. And I think staff is getting more and more comfortable with is in Alameda, we should be focusing on the physical form, the form based zoning. Let's folk, people care about heights. They care about building mass. They care about how buildings sit on the property. Let's focus on that. And let's worry less about how many units are inside the building. That's what the density does. It, it limits how many units you can put inside of that building. And since we are interested in getting as many units as we can get built to get to our arena, um, given that we as a community are looking for affordable units, and smaller units tend to be more affordable than big units. The staff, we are really starting to ask ourselves, what benefit does a residential density standard actually give us? Like, how does it help us in any way? And I think where we're landing on that question is it's really, it doesn't help us, it only hurts us. Um, and just let's let's eliminate the residential density standards entirely in the R1 or the R2 through R6. Um, if you want to do the MF overlay approach, let's then just eliminate it within the MF overlay approach. Mm -hmm. Did that well, make sense? Yeah, no, that that makes total sense, uh, Andrew. I appreciate the explanation. So, kind of a follow-up question. What I'm trying to what I was trying to do is figure out the difference between the R districts if you don't have the overlay versus if you do the overlay. And, and I primarily what I'm seeing is some relaxation in some setback requirements and maybe a more permissive height limit to 45 feet. Um, those seem to be the primary changes. And then the other question I have is when I look at the overlay district, it seems to cover pretty much a majority of the districts that are already sown R5, R6, R4, perhaps R3, I don't know. So part of me says, why, why would you have this base district that has some more restrictive setback standards when perhaps the majority of say, at least the R5 or R6, I don't, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like most of those 
our districts, the multifamily districts, are within the the um, transit corridor. So I'm I'm just kind of wondering whether that could create more confusion than necessary. I'm not opposed to overlay districts. I'm just trying to understand the logic and the ramifications of having these two tier standards. Yeah, I, thank you for those questions. And you missed the presentation, so I'll just oh, show okay. off. Yeah, I'm, sorry. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna show off my favorite slide, which Brian produced, which shows the overlay district. I think this is the drawing that was in your packet that you're referring to. Yeah, yeah, the yellow right. lines show a perspective overlay district. So, um, you know, anything outside of the yellow overlay district you'd have your base zoning R1 or R2. And you're right, all the R, basically most of the R3 in Alameda is within that overlay district. All of the R4 is, or 99% of it, all mm. of the R6 is. So what's interesting to me about this map is if you look at where R2, R3, R4, R5, R6, and each one has a slightly higher height limit, each one allows, historically allowed more units, they are located where you would want them to be on mm -hmm. the transit corridors. Um, so our, our form and our zoning actually, if you say, hey, we wanna focus our new development in the R3, R4, R5, R6, you are basically, as this map shows you, essentially focusing on, on zones which are within those transit-rich corridors. Yeah. Um, you know, I think <clears throat> uh, from staff's perspective, I think we still think changing, just going, changing the base zoning, um, maximizing the opportunity for people, somebody, I mean, the, the downside of the overlay district is if somebody in the R2 or the R3 that's outside of this boundary wants to do three units in a building, we're going to say, no, I'm sorry, you can't. You are still prohibited from having multifamily housing. Um, that's just, it's just, it's cutting off an opportunity um, to, to get housing built in Alameda in a way that just sort of blends in with the, with the, with the community. The, the, the overlay district, it, 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 it prevents that. And maybe that's good. Maybe some people see that as a good thing. Um, but we felt that if we're going to do an overlay district like this, which is just tightly bound around the, the districts, we should have a uniform height limit within that area. Um, so you might be just one of these small areas of R2 um, you know, like up in here or R1 even, mm -hmm. it is actually very close. Like you're very, you're in a very transit rich location. Yeah. And the base zoning approach, I think we're taking more of the attitude of, hey, each zone has been customized heights, customized building shapes, customized sort of setback requirements. Let's, let's, let's maintain those and preserve them, but try to get as much housing built in each one of those districts within those constraints. The overlay says, no, you know what? Let's keep those constraints in place for everyone except those people who are inside the overlay district. If you're inside the overlay district, then you're all gonna be treated the same. Mm -hmm. Multifamily yeah. housing, 45 foot height limit, no residential density. Yeah. Everyone outside the district, you have your same basic restrictions you've had for the last 50 years. Yeah. So, so basically if you're like within the transit corridor and you happen to be one of those parcels in R1 or R2, is kind of, I, I'll use the term misleading to 
assume you're in a single family or two family district because the overlay district essentially for all intents and purposes rezones you to, you know, the R3 through R6 uh, categories, right? I think that's, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's generally true. Um, let me just ask, um, Brian McGuire, you, Brian McGuire on our staff, he's been sort of the primary architect working on the MF overlay proposal. Is there anything else, Brian, that you wanted to say or feel like would be helpful here? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you you've, you both have sort of identified a lot of the the sort of realizations or the trade offs. I think the overlay definitely takes a little different approach. It's it's obviously with an overlay, you sort of okay, what's the form based code? What's the development standards you want to start with, as opposed to amending the underlying districts? The other thing it does is, you know, it it's sort of it does have a lot in common. It scoops up most of the R4, 5, and 6, or all of the R5 and 6, just about. Um, you know, but it does scoop up some of the R2 and some of the R1 that maybe the, the option 1 doesn't. Um, and sort of, you know, treats, if you're in an R1 district that has great transit, you, I mean, those folks along, you know, east of Broadway there, you know, um, maybe between Versailles and, and, and Broadway, um, or in the north part of the Gold Coast, for example, those folks have really good access to transit. Should they? Should we be preserving that um, as low density, or do we want to maximize that access to the transit? It's just you know two different approaches. I think it, from a fair housing point of view, I think there might be some some interesting discussions to have around um, whether we're sort of respecting the historic you know yeah. single family zones and and what that came with historically and versus, you know, I mean, we can't erase that history, but we can sort of um, at least be logical about how we go forward and purposeful. So, I, I mean, the, the questions are, uh, you've all sort of outlined, but um, it really is just a policy question on which way to proceed. Yeah, yeah, no, okay. Thanks for clarifying. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I got, I'm struggling with the whole concept, but I uh, have I'll leave that as it stands. Uh, I do have a question regarding ADUs. Uh, I think there was really good discussion uh, among the board members with a question about ADUs. Now, one of the things I'm understanding um, is HCD is very critical on fair housing issues. In fact, uh, recent surveys show that the majority of the comments on other cities' housing elements were regarding fair housing. Um, you know, fair housing covers a lot of items, but I guess a question I have, if we're able to, to say we can meet, um, we don't need to upzone the residential district, we can meet the housing supply with just ADUs, does it raise a fair housing question um, that HCD might have a problem with the fact that the city, you know, identifies pretty much the mixed-use districts and corridors for multifamily, but none of the residential districts allow for multifamily except through the ADUs and maybe SB nine. It, it's there is an outstanding question that's out there, and uh, HCD is being very critical about about those issues geographically as well as other issues. Yeah, I, I um, thank you for that question. I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, we have been watching the HCD response to other cities and their housing elements. We have met with HCD on our housing element already three times. 
So, I mean, not big, extensive reviews. We have not sent them the housing element for review yet, but we have had the opportunity to meet with them periodically and talk to them about our, you know, our housing element, our approach, everything we're doing, um, and sort of getting sort of initial reactions. Um, we do know from our meetings and also reading the letters to other cities at HCD, just like you said, they are focusing on this issue of um, fair housing. Um, they have also sent us a letter, which we sent to the board under written communication. It came in last year. We sent it directly to the city council. And if anybody needs to get that letter again, just ask, we'll send it to you. But I mean, the city council asked and HCD provided a letter saying, yeah, prohibiting multifamily housing in your residential districts is a big problem. It's inconsistent with state law. You can't do it and it's unenforceable. So the staff recommendation, we should not be sending a housing element to HCD that says, oh, we're gonna continue to prohibit multifamily housing in our residential zoning districts. I guarantee you the very first comment we will get back from them amongst seven pages of comments will be, you're prohibiting multifamily housing in residential zoning districts? Uh, no, that's not gonna work, Alameda. Um, so um, I think we have to, no, you also missed the other slide, I won't bring it up, but um, we're gonna struggle to meet our numbers without the residential districts. I don't think we even can. So we are going to need to show some growth of housing in our residential districts um, just to meet the numbers. And we're going to have to show HCD that we are not continuing to prohibit multifamily housing and therefore the people who can only afford multifamily housing from every single residential district in Alameda. Um, that is not going to pass the fair housing test. In, yeah, in that, that, is, that is a concern that I, I know other cities have faced that uh, similar situation where they designate their, their you know, mixed use districts for the residential and that becomes even more problematic that you don't have any residential districts. Anyway, uh, I have a couple of other questions, but I'm just going to hold those questions. They're a little bit more minor. So for the interest of, you know, expediting this process along. I'll, uh, I'll, that's, those are my quest, primary questions. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Um, before we open this up to public comment, I just had a couple questions myself. One is, Andrew, you may have already said this in a past meeting. How do the numbers for assisted living count towards the RENA numbers? Um, if that is built as far as senior housing or assisted living. What's what's the plan there? Well, we th we believe we can count them towards the okay. arena, um, as long as it's the primary residence. I mean, the 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 basic thing is, you know, if it's a dormitory for college kids, you probably can't count. If it's right, the right. primary residence for that person, whether it's the end of their life, whether it's you know, so this whole issue, of, is there a kitchen or not, which is kind of the mm -hmm. sort of initial definition of what is a housing unit. There may be situations like assisted living, um, end of life living. Um, uh, memory care. Memory care. Yeah, exactly. Alzheimer's types of units. Um, 
uh, or for the care of Alzheimer patients, I should say, um, yeah, that, that HCD will count because it is a place for somebody to live permanently, okay. not temporarily, permanently. And they don't have the other sort of standard HCDs is, is does that person have an address somewhere else? Like, like you know, they're, they're home in Los Angeles and they only come up here to go to school. Well, then you can't count it. Right. Okay. And then um, just my other question that I had is on the transit overlay. Um, I like the idea of where this is headed. I was curious, the usable open space, uh, 120 square feet per unit. Um, I don't recall, is that for private open space, public open space, or utilized in either scenario? It's a, it's open space provided for each, you know, per unit on site. Okay. It can be private or what we call common in our zoning code, common, meaning yeah, common you know, roof deck, all the tenants get to share it versus each, each tenant having a private little porch or deck, which is just for their unit. So, or maybe there's a top lot downstairs on the ground floor that's shared, you know. Does uh, interior amenity space count towards that number or, or it's all outdoor space? Um, it's, I believe under our zoning code, it's outdoor space. Um, we haven't had the situation where we've really had to sort of get into that conversation. Like, you know, a subdivision might have a clubhouse or something or, a, you know, that they use common. We just haven't had to deal with that issue in the last 20 years. Uh, my question, on, yeah, just a follow-up would be that, was there any consideration of um, reducing the amount of uh, square feet per unit to your point earlier about trying to let density um, govern and smaller units by design creates affordability uh, that the smaller the unit gets the 120 square feet per unit starts to feel a little bit out of proportion so i'm i'm curious if there was consideration when you think about that's 12 foot by 10 foot you know if you just make a rectangle um versus you know let's say half of that 60 square feet which is still six by ten so i i am curious uh if there was thought behind um actually manipulating that open space number as part of the the transit overlay proposal i think um just real quickly from staff's perspective we are totally open to that conversation um this was a um a, a conversation that the planning board had over a year ago in 2021 um, at that time, currently under the code, it's R2 is 600 feet per unit. R3 is 500 feet per square unit, per unit. Right. You know, right. R3. So we have huge numbers today. In 2021, the planning board had a conversation and decided let's reduce it all to 120 across the board. We just picked that up and ran with right. it for this packet. I think one thing that you've raised, which is really interesting, and we just haven't talked about it as uh, amongst staff, is this idea of sort of prorating it based on unit size. I mean, we are seeing units coming in now on private projects where, you know, unit size is well under a thousand, you know, and especially in the multifamily buildings, well under a thousand feet, like you 600 square foot units, 700 square foot units, studios. You start thinking, well, and you're going to require 120 feet of open space for that. And it's the same for the fed four bedroom unit, like 
maybe there should be some right, sort of right. graduated scale or something. Okay, sounds good. Uh, I see Brian, you raised your hand. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to add to that. I mean, you know, when when we were discussing, I know, you know, oh, sorry if my cat's starting to play the piano in the background. I don't know if you can hear that um, <laughs> pleasantness, um, but uh, we not a very good um we we you know it, i think what it does is since this the overlay district only applies to the r districts and obviously you the 120 that the planning board discussed last year is already a pretty significant reduction in in the requirements depending on which district it is one thing it does it just sort of reinforces the idea that you know well, this form-based code idea doesn't have to necessarily mean the end of you know open space or lights or anything in these in these um, historically, you know, residential neighborhoods. And so if the, somebody does take advantage of the, the ability to do more density, there is sort of a sort of uh, a regulator on that that sort of counterbalances at some point um, that ensures that there's, a you know, if you do a few extra units, you might have to do a little bit of extra, make sure there's a little extra open space that's usable. Um, and so it's just sort of, you know, it's like anything, it's a question of what what constraints you sort of relieve and, and what ones you leave in. But, you know, in my view, it does sort of act as a, uh, a governor a little bit on, you know, density to a point, but then you still have this other constraint. Obviously, we don't have the off-street parking requirements um, at this point, but the open space does sort of sort of fill that that niche. Right. And, and also some jurisdictions will look at proximity to public parks as well. Um, in, in the development. So if you have access to open space, that's, let's say, you know, 500 feet away or whatever distance one wants to place on it, that starts changing the calculus of that as well. So, okay, that's, that's helpful to understand. I just think if we want to continue to um, look at the factors that may play a role in, in um, getting us to where we want to get to, we, we, we should look at this factor as well. Uh, all right, let's open it up to public comments. If you'd like to speak on this item, please raise your hand. Looks like we've got one person in the public who would like to speak. You've got, oh no, now there's more people raising their hand. Okay, so you'll have three minutes to speak. Um, could we start with the first speaker, please? Okay, we have Zach Bowling. And we have Zach Bowling. Hi there, can you hear me? Awesome. Uh, yeah, I just want to say on options one and two, I think it doesn't necessarily have to be an either or situation. Um, I love focusing housing near our high frequency transit and I love option two. I think um, that a quarter mile might still exclude some good like R plus two areas in the West End and East End and Bronze Coast and along the shoreline where we could redevelop some of those older apartments um, and in Bay Farm, especially because it just sort of excludes it all. Um, so why not do a little bit of both, encourage housing near transit, and maybe we can do this with like an affordable housing overlay and streamline some affordable housing to cut fees on projects in these areas um, that are willing to do more than our 15% affordable. Um, we could hit our low-income arena targets. I did have sort of a knee-jerk reaction that maybe this sort of heavily focuses on putting density where we already have density, which could push displacement if we're not careful. I know our rent control could sort of somewhat fix that, but that also could be uh, making it harder to prove feasibility of development um, these specific areas to HCD, given that they already have a, an existing use. Um, uh, I'm 
very much on the side that we should be encouraging more high density housing in our high resource neighborhoods um, a bit, including Bay Farm and Gold Coast. And I think that if we did just option two, then we're kind of leaning on the C2 overlay that would help us meet AFH in those areas, um, which is kind of a lot to, to put on it. Um, maybe consider looking at the other lines that we didn't include in the high frequency bus line, like the OW 1920, 21, and maybe do an eighth mile as an option or just do both um, option one and option two um, to some limited extent on both. Um, on the ADU discussion, I've reviewed dozens of housing elements in Southern California, especially those that have been rejected. And even some of the most housing adversities um, haven't won by arguing that their numbers are higher than the safe hardened guidance from HCD. Um, you have to affirmatively prove that you uh, are going to have feasibility of those ADUs. So the staff would have to do an analysis. So I'd caution against going that route and pushing um, to go higher on that. And on ABS's comment about converting R1 to R2 um, to avoid, avoid SB9, that would absolutely get us sued by SB330 as a downzoning. Um, and in the Oregon, I'm a volunteer lead in. Um, we just won a case against the Southern California city that tried to do something similar with downzoning. So I would highly encourage not doing that route. Uh, anyways, uh, those are my thoughts. So thank you very much. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Next, we have Karen Bay. Yes, good evening, uh, uh, President uh, Sahaba, members of the planning board and staff. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the fair housing issues, the conundrum that you raised, um, Andrew. And uh, so, you know, by putting all of the, um, the majority of the affordable housing at Alameda Point, which is on the west end, we're going to go back to kind of the way we were. <laughs> and we're not really addressing the fair housing issues if we're not spreading it around. So maybe the goal should be to make Alameda Point a high resource development so that we don't have a low, low end, low, I don't know what you want to call it, but we don't have, we need to bring the West End up to the same par, the rest of the island. And I think that's, that's the solution here. And, and to do that, we want proximity to jobs, we want retail, we want parks and open space, we want healthcare, the same things that the East End has, we have it on the West End so that there is no difference I, I think that's part of the solution. Um, and it, to do that, to accomplish that, I think we need to revisit the master plan at Alameda Point. Because um, I don't want us to do this sort of piecemealing projects. Alameda Point is a very valuable piece of land. It's located 20 minutes from San Francisco. So revisiting the master plan, if we're going to put all of the housing at Alameda Point, so that we make sure that we have the sports complex that was, that was uh, contemplated with an, hopefully an aquatic center, that we have the commercial, the jobs, uh, the retail, that we don't take away the retail that, that we had. Um, because then if you take away all of those things and then put the affordable housing all on the West End, then, then 
it's like we've recreated what we did in the past. So it's very important that we have a very good master plan that if you're gonna put the affordable on, on the West End, that we also have all of the amenities and the jobs and the healthcare, all of those things that will make Alameda Point a high resource development. Um, and I get emotional about this because I grew up in the projects and I know what it's like to grow up in the projects and feel a sense of hopelessness because you can't see beyond the borders of, of, of your environment. So I don't want us to make the same mistake. And I feel very emotional about it, I'm sorry, but I don't want us to make the same mistake. So thank you. <clears throat> thank you, Karen. Uh, next speaker, please. Next we have Christopher Buckley. Christopher Buckley with the Alameda Architectural Preservation Society. Uh, we sent you a letter which has been referred to and would like to thank board member Rothenberg for uh, um, you know, posing some of the questions we had in the letter to staff. Uh, before I review the letter though, uh, we, we were kind of blindsided here by the changes in the arena numbers that was included in the staff report, particularly for the residential districts. The uh, staff report says that we need 600 80 units in the residential districts that include 480 U's plus uh, 200 other units. But now we're being told that the number has gone up, that we need somewhere between 730 units and 980. So that really changes the way that APS needs to analyze this proposal. So we really request that staff, uh, that you please don't keep moving the goalposts here. It makes it a lot harder to kind of keep up with all this. So um, I'm gonna wing it here a little bit. Um, you know, as noted, you know, we thought because of the uptick in the ADUs, those combined with SB9, uh, that based on the current track, when we came up with 79 units in 2021, not 78, but that's close enough, um, we would end up with 704 units uh, for the eight year period if that stays. Um, that still now falls short of the minimum number that staff is now presenting of seven, 730, only, however, only 26 units short. But if we go for nine, if we need 980 units, then it's 276 units short. Uh, also in response to um, board member Ruiz's question, uh, so far in 2022, we seem to be ahead of the pace in 2021, but this is only like three and a half months. So as previously noted, we need to see how all this pans out but so far it is looking encouraging. Um, our biggest, so we really thought that the massive upzoning being proposed for the residential areas was unnecessary and overkill because of the way the ADUs are looking. Uh, one of our biggest concerns is that the proposed, is the unlimited density um, in both of these options, in option one, R2 through R6, and all areas in option two, uh, that basically would allow state density bonus law projects on every residential parcel. And that really seems reckless to us, given the particular possibility of exceeding height limits. Also, um, it may be true that developers so far have used the 20% bonus, but that's in the past. With unlimited residential density, we could have a different 
type of developer coming in that would be using a higher level of density bonus. So really as this analysis that we requested, and thank you board member Rothenberg for, for posing that question to staff, you know, we were envisioning taking a look at what's happening in other cities that would have zoning rules similar to what is being proposed in this housing element to see what kind of density bonus projects are occurring there. So that's a request for staff as part of this analysis that we had mentioned. Also, um, as far as fair housing is concerned, uh, with the upzoning of R1, which as staff noted is about now 78 units per acre, would that help us meet, uh, address the fair housing argument? So that's, that's another question. Um, uh, another question we had was that previously staff suggested the unlimited density would apply only within existing building envelopes. And um, that's not mentioned in this current proposal. So we're wondering what happened to that idea. We, we thought actually that was very interesting and we're inclined to support it. So, um, and I can't see how I'm doing on time here. I can't see the you're, time. You're on this. out of time. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And we got, we received your letter as well. Thank you. Um, if we could go to the next speaker, please. Next, we have Josh Geyer. Hi, uh, good evening, planning board. Um, glad to have the opportunity to um, sit through this extremely informative briefing um, and hear folks' thoughts on it. Uh, so I think that this um, choice between option one and option two is really interesting. Um, it's kind of the, the, if you're trying to build up density or build up the number of units in a place like Alameda, which is you know, like in like a streetcar suburb, um, you can, and, and this is the same kind of debate that's been happening um, in other places around the Bay Area, you can either uniformly upzone or you can, you can upzone more so around transit corridors and focus your growth there. And then those are, I, I see those as kind of like these two, these two main options. And I have to say that even though I would love for there to be uh, you know, six plexes in the Gold Coast and other and other places like that, and more development in um, on on the Far East End or East Shore. Um, it's just not as efficient a way of developing, and not as a sustainable a way of developing as is substantially upzoning around um, transit corridors. You're not going to get the heights. You're not going to get the density in places that that aren't nearby already dense, already high places. Um, you're not going to get the modes, the mode shift that you want, the mode usage that you want. It building, you know, building, um, you know, four plexes, six pluses, whatever, spread out over the R ones and R twos. That you you're not going to get the same kinds of um, transit uses as you would if you really focus um, density around those transit corridors. I like the suggestion of kind of a little of both. Um, I. I think that it's a point well taken that if you're an R1 immediately outside of the, um, or an R2 or whatever, immediately outside of the overlay district, then that is kind of odd that you can't, that we're gonna, so why not say, okay, we're gonna up zone, we're gonna do a little bit of an up zone on R1 and R2, whatever, and then also do this overlay. Um, I also think that um, I like the idea of looking at additional bus lines and especially finding the bus, the the corridor in Bay Farm, 
that that should also be um, upzoned in this manner. Um, that they, um, I, 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 I think that there's a really strong argument. I was looking at the um, boundaries of the catchment areas for the AUSD elementary schools and the the transit um, overlay appears to be in every single one of them on the main island. But of course, it is not on either the either catchment area for either elementary school on Bay Farm. So I would love to see the transit overlay be extended there as well. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. We have Alex uh, Spare. Hi, um, my name is Alex and I live in the Burbank Pertola Historic District. And um, I was a little surprised to see that the Crab Cove Park in Washington Park makeup seems to be most of the high opportunity area, um, which is presumably problematic for building things. Um, but I really don't get the historical um, stuff. Um, they seem to only want to limit our building heights. They don't seem to care about keeping historic buildings. And I feel like there hasn't actually been anything said in our conversation about um, building preservation and how that works, um, other than that Webster isn't under any of it. And I'm kind of curious what the effect would be on our older pre, say, 1960s, 1970s buildings. Um, I did walk down Webster and I was looking at all the buildings and there's some really nice old two to three story historic looking buildings and the windows and doorways are apparently physically illegal to build now. Um, and there's also really short buildings that, you know, why don't we just tear down our, um, our newer stuff and build up taller stuff? Um, and if our stated goal is to preserve historic character of neighborhoods, we should encourage and incentivize older facade reuse with an extra height bonus. Um, in Oakland, the Broadway auto area seems to be doing this. So you'd think that we could do that too. And I, it would be nice if we figure out a way to just go and let people build taller apartment buildings where we've already got apartment buildings. I mean, why, why not, wherever it is on the island, why not just allow that? Double it in size, go for it. Um, thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Next, we have Drew Dara Abrams. Hi, good evening. Drew Dara Abrams calling in from Calhoun Street on the East End. And I want to just add overall support for the changes to the R1 through R6 residential zones that staff are proposing. Um, first to permitted uses. The changes are important for both meeting state law and important for uh, living the values of all parts of the city, being able to provide necessary social and support services. A second to process, um, the streamlined changes will help not just enable more, but better developments to actually reach fruition here in Alameda. And uh, my layperson's understanding is if Alameda does not do this, the state will actually impose the same streamlining um, if the state doesn't have a valid housing element. Uh, third, uh, regarding the design review, uh, the 
my layman's understanding of these design review changes is it will really focus on key aspects that are worthy of debate and remove some unnecessary ways in which proposed projects can be held hostage. Uh, and finally, to the um, two multifamily options, um, I'll, I'll just echo a number of the good questions and comments I've heard during public comment and apologies if, if some of these came up previously in the uh, presentation, which I missed, but the transit oriented overlay is really compelling. Um, Alameda has kind of already made procedural peace or whatever you want to call it with a MF overlay and more importantly, it would tie denser development to the availability of transit and make a good faith effort to actually address uh, some of residents' concerns about increasing density. So please do consider the criteria for um, the transit overlay, like ferry sites and transbay buses, uh, and also um, how bus lines are interlined. So routes that uh, serve a selection of the same stops like the 21 and the OX going through the East End and Bay Farm. Um, these are details that really can be worked out. They don't have to drive the discussion, um, but you know, the, I, I really do think it does serve the goal of locating denser development near transit that is usable. And finally, I'd just like to echo um, um, others and also calling to make sure that the transit overlay really will address both the unit counts and types, but also um, addressing existing patterns of residential segregation and changing those for the better. So thank you for your time. Thank you. Can we have the next speaker, please? Okay, next we have Dolores Kelleher. Good evening. Um, my name is uh, Dodie Kelleher and I am a resident of Alameda and a member of AAPS. So my comments will be primarily in support of the comments letter sent by Chris Buckley on behalf of AAPS. And if you have not already, I urge the planning board and staff to read and consider it closely because it not only details um, arguments, if you will, uh, around why we don't need to have this, you know, what I would consider an overly uh, broad and unnecessary change in zoning across the board. Um, but also I'm specifically concerned with the proposed amendments that allow for either unlimited resi residential density in R2 through R6 in one or the transit overlay option two, which by definition covers a substantial portion of the west and central parts of Alameda. Um, there's not many places that aren't in a quarter mile of, a, of the AC transit. And uh, it appears to be overly broad and unnecessary because uh, it, it would also allow for that state density bonus law uh, so that projects on, on every residential par parcel within the upzoned areas would essentially invite developers um, to demand the relaxation of the zoning standards further such as height limits, lot coverage, setbacks, but without much in return of truly affordable housing with the size of the lots. 
And so I live in central Alameda in a single family Victorian. And there are a lot of um, older stock housing that is multifamily housing around me. Next to me is a, a, a four units, which is on a rel relatively large lot. And I uh, honestly I would be concerned that it would be uh, an incentive for a developer, not the landlord who owns it, but developer to buy that lot and put up a five-story building that would uh, overshadow all the other uh, housing on the, on the block. So I really do think that um, there are ways to create enough uh, residential multifamily housing without making substantial standards, changes in zoning. And if it, in the future that doesn't hold true, then we can change it then. Thank you. Thank you. Last speaker, please. Next we have Sophia DeWitt. Um, good evening, planning board members and staff. Uh, Reverend Sophia DeWitt, program director with East Bay Housing Organizations and Alameda resident on Buena Vista Avenue. Um, I'm uh, calling tonight to support um, the staff uh, recommendation for the changes to the R1 to R6 um, zoning areas. And also as uh, other speakers have mentioned uh, from the public, I do like um, the idea of, and the proposal for the, the overlay um, zone in the transit corridors. I think it obviously will help um, to uh, get more housing and specifically more affordable housing to help meet the arena, but it also helps meet um, climate um, goals and imperatives. Um, but I, we want to be careful, of course, that we're um, not putting all of the affordable housing either on those corridors or um, in particular neighborhoods like the West End, where we might, if we did that, create um, a, a fair housing problem for ourselves. Um, and so the entire um, community of Alameda, the whole island needs more housing and more uh, affordable housing and uh, affordable housing needs to go in high resource uh, neighborhoods as well as, uh, as well as other neighborhoods in the city. Um, and so, you know, Bay Farm should be considered uh, and the transit, um, the limited transit that goes out there. Um, and uh, really all neighborhoods, residential neighborhoods on the East End, et cetera. So um, just wanna be sure that um, we are, we're spreading um, the new housing and the, the new affordable development around um, so that more folks have the opportunity to take advantage of um, the wonderful and beautiful things about um, the city of Alameda. And I look forward to continuing to follow this process and uh, for EBHO to be a resource um, to you as planning board members and to city staff as needed um, as the housing element continues to get created. So thanks very much for your time this evening and attention.
Thank you. Uh, are there any more speakers? There are no speakers at this time. No more speakers. Okay. Uh, so that closes public comment section. Uh, we could open it up for board deliberations and questions. Uh, sorry, and, and, and since this is a um, just a, a public hearing and a workshop, there won't be any action taken. Uh, let's start with board member T. Thank you. I'd like to thank staff and uh, the public for speaking on this item. I'm going to go through the exhibits sort of in order, starting with the annual report. Um, I had a question which I didn't ask. What types of votes does this need from the city council and planning board, if any? You're muted. Oh, we just need your comments, board comments. Um, okay, great, thanks. Um, on page six in the section residential zoning districts, I would really like to change the focus of it that we are basically, we are going to alter our zoning to remove barriers to housing construction without specifying the R2 to R3. Uh, and the first bullet would be, we are looking to permit multifamily housing by right in order to comply with fair housing and our arena numbers, as opposed to saying exactly what districts. Mm -hmm. In the density section, I would just strike that. And we should be encouraging and potentially enabling the rehabilitation and adaptation of the existing buildings for multifamily housing. Uh, I'm getting a feedback from someone. Um, on page nine, at the second paragraph from the bottom, uh, where we talk about we could consider changing the distribution of the units. I have brought this up over and over and over again, Andrew. I'm sorry, but 1% added is not enough. We can change it to be two uh, to get at least double the very low in order for them to get the density bonus. And that's a very small change, and it's really not a significant change uh, to justify it, but it would make a difference for our numbers. Um, on the section on Measure A, uh, I think it is an omission to not talk about the most recent vote as part of the history. And you already answered the question about how many ADUs kind of were on track for 2022. So I appreciate that. Uh, where is the, um, where was the discussion about the, the measure A and the, do you remember? What There's a whole bulleted section talking about measure A. Yeah. Oh, there it is. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Talk uh, about on exhibit, on exhibit three, uh, we dropped the annotation of what's required by state law. I'd like that to come back so that we have like a blue box for those things that are required for state law versus those that we're choosing to do. For the various special needs categories. Yeah, you know, the supportive housing, transitional yep. housing, you know, those are all absolutely required. Um, 
the definitions and stuff. Not. I'm only going to pick out some small things, but I have lots of issues with it. Um, on page E41, dwelling shall mean a detached building by one family, not more than one kitchen. The whole idea that we're tying kitchen to unit count, I just hate. I have always hated. I don't like it. Uh, multifamily to me is really five or more families. When we start talking about families, you know, we're really not very inclusion and it gets, I, it, it just really sets off a lot of issues that I have with non-traditional housing situations. Um, so the, on the shared living, where we talk about with kitchens, it gets really messy because now let's just think about a building that you have a parlor, a bedroom and a bathroom that is limited to a particular set of people with shared kitchen and dining for everything else and maybe even a shared common area for everything else. And we don't exclude, that's excluded, you can't do that. So, you know, that would be like workforce housing, something that is better than just a room um, that this wouldn't really allow. So I, I'm, and then there's a contradictory definition later on when we talk about dwelling unit, meaning a group of rooms, including a kitchen, bath, and quarters, but it's no longer saying it only has to be one kitchen, not two kitchens or three or, you know, so in a communal situation where maybe I have four of these suites and two kitchens that are shared, you know, that could be an interesting co-living, shared living kind of situation that uh, we should try to encourage because it's, I don't know where the world is going, but in terms of senior living or, you know, living in place and being able to have uh, a community and yet have privacy, that kind of situation would be really useful. And we talk about the family and we use the word common use of all living and that kind of says, well, no, you can't do that other thing. Then. Um, so that's my comments on exhibit four. Uh, as I'm sure you all know more than a lot, I am all in favor of trotting the path well-trod of overlays for dealing with two things enabling multifamily and changing density. I am all in favor of changing our zoning to be as most permissive as possible in terms of setbacks, open space. I'd be in favor of getting rid of all open space, any barrier there that prevents the building of housing such that we can really enable people to have a wide variety of choices. Um, I like SB10s idea of the 10 unit per parcel. And one of the things that they raise up about that is because of the constriction of the property, you're going to end up building smaller units, which by their nature tends to be more affordable. And so for the transit overlay, which I like, you know, I would really like it to be more like 
10 units per parcel. I don't care how big your parcel is, 10 units. So that store on the corner of Lincoln and Willow, you want to put 10 units in? Great, go for it. But when I think about what we're doing, there are two pieces. One is dealing with our arena, which is how many units we have. And I'm sorry, Andrew, you made me go like, yeah, I'm okay with going 10% over because the repercussion of going under is solvable. And I know it's a pain if we did, but it's solvable. So I'm a little more flexible on that. But the other issue is fair housing. And we look at the map of opportunity map, which it would be really great if you had it such that when you move your mouse over it, it shows you the actual island. So you could tell where things are because it has Oakland and all of that kind of thing is I really want the idea of a fair housing, which says you can have four units on your parcel. I don't care how big your parcel is. You can have four units on it and definitely in all of the highest in high areas and ideally the moderate as well. So you're allowed to have four units, four units, go ahead, do what you want. The issue is we're spreading it out. We're giving people opportunities. It enables those people that we're talking about next door to me is a Victorian that was converted to multifamily prior to measure A because it can't be done today. Enable that to be done today so that people can change their multifamily large unit into four units and make that happen. And that to me helps us provide access throughout the island on Harbor Bay, in the Gold Coast, and all of those highest and high opportunity zones. That's really where I would like us to go because in the when I talk about overlay versus changing the zoning, it's kind of trying to split the question between what we're doing and where we're doing it. Because we can define an overlay independent of where we're going to put it. We can say, we're gonna do this fair housing overlay. It allows you to have four units per lot. Where are we gonna do it? We'll decide that afterwards. Okay, maybe we do it in the highest in the high, or maybe we just do it in the highest. Or maybe we do it in all the residential zones. But it splits the question because we know we have to improve access to housing and make it available. And the, the nice thing about the four units is, well, it doesn't take commercial financing. And so, you know, the financing of those kinds of units is much better. It, it allows us to reuse the existing buildings because someone's going to go, oh, well, I could convert this building to four units versus tearing it down to build five or seven, you know, cause the cost of tearing it down and building the new units is so much more than just converting the existing building. So that's why I'm pushing the idea of the overlay versus the changing the zoning in regards only to the multifamily and density stuff. The rest of it, remove as many barriers from the zoning as we can and especially remove from our zoning measure A that we have put in every single zoning. So remove those things that says, you know, we've copied it over into all of our zoning. And I wish we had never done that. Let it be such that it's different. Um, so that's my feedback 
on the overlay versus the change to the zoning, the approach to the zoning. Uh, and I'm sorry I put the city attorney at point there, but the issue is in the overlay, we can say to meet our state obligations for housing, we talk about for the like the transit overlay in order to comply with fair housing access, we do this four unit thing. It's in there, it's defined, it's something we've done before. I can vote for that. Just saying allowing multifamily in an R zone, I'm gonna have probably have to abstain from that. And I don't want to. I want to vote for something, you know. So uh, that's where I am because you know, the information we have gotten so far about our protection uh, from lawsuits is, well, it's up to the women's city council. And I, I, I don't, that's not comfortable enough for me uh, to do that. So that's it for me. Thank you very much for listening. Um, that's it. Thank you. Um, board member Ciceros. Um, thank you. Um, so I am uh, also not against um, overlay zoning, but um, as I said in a previous meeting that I would prefer to make the changes directly in the zoning code. Um, I do appreciate um, our city attorney looking into the question just so we could have that um, information black and white to combat any misinformation. But we do have a letter from HCD, and I'm just going to read the one line here where they say, HCD finds and agrees with staff analysis that Article 26 conflicts with state housing law and is preempted and unenforceable. So for whatever that's worth, um, I do uh, think that that helps to further justify why I uh, so passionately want to change um, the language directly in the zoning code, it really resonated um, in the staff report that we haven't really had a measure A compliant project since 2006. And that's interesting because in practical terms, uh, it almost, it, like, it doesn't really mean anything because we have all these workarounds. We have the state density bonus law, we have zoning overlays. Um, so, you know, we're, um, you know, we're, we're able to do a lot, even with that exclusionary zoning, so explicitly black and white in our zoning code. And for me, it's a principal thing. Um, it, it bothers me that it's like in our official documents and what it says about our community, like to the world, to the public. Um, I don't think of it quite as apples to apples, but you know, I can't help but think about like some of these deeds out there, like these racially restrictive covenants where in black and white, they say that people of color can't live in this home unless like they're the help. You know, it's this day and age, we have people of color living in those homes, um, but it doesn't make it right that in those deeds that they have that language there um, so I, I think there's been like legislation trying to remove some of that language in those deeds and, you know, uh, 
you know, practically speaking, it doesn't mean anything, um, but it doesn't really make it right. It's a principal thing. It bothers me. So, um, yeah, for that reason, I, I uh, do, I would like to do some changes of the base zoning. Uh, I, I do think a lot of the comments uh, this evening make a lot of sense. Um, you know, HCD recommends 30 dwelling units per acre for affordable housing because we need that density to make projects feasible, not 21 dwelling units per acre. Um, I really think about how are we gonna address our affordable housing crisis unless we do encourage uh, more multifamily and affordable and, and more density. Um, so there's like that project feasibility aspect too uh, that I, I think should be reflected in our zoning code. So with that all said, um, I, I like the creative solutions of combining the two. That makes a lot of sense to me to have um, the higher density within one fourth quarter mile. So um, if we could, uh, as some of the comment commentators mentioned tonight, um, look at that option. Uh, I would support that. Uh, and yeah, I just want to, I want to thank everyone for their public comments tonight, but especially Karen Bay, because that uh, really resonated with me where Yes, every community should be a high resource community um, here in Alameda. And we need to think about how we could equitably distribute affordable housing throughout the island, not just in concentrating certain neighborhoods. Um, and those are my comments. Thank you. Uh, Board Member Hall. Th thank you. Um, I'll offer my comments and some of it is, you know, it, I like the concept of the uh, overlay district in concept. Um, there's some things that it doesn't do in my opinion that might be considered. Um, one thing when I think of an overlay district, uh, you know, it seems like the main objective is to increase a allowable number of units, you know, near a transit corridor, which makes a lot of sense. Um, I have mixed feelings about allowing it in the R1, R2, but I'm kind of undecided about that. But part of what I see missing is the affordable housing component. You know, if this with conceptually promoting more affordable housing near a transit corridor makes a lot of sense. So part of me says that if you're gonna increase or relax zoning standards or allow greater height, similar to kind of like you kind of like codifying the density bonus ordinance. Is there, would it make sense to, if a homeowner wants to take advantage of the overlay district, that perhaps it should have a more, a higher affordable housing requirement. Uh, so, but if they don't, then they can develop at the base district that has more restrictive setback standards. So part of me is saying, how do you use the, the uh, overlay district to not only increase the allowable number of units near transit, but also increase the affordable housing units? Because we, we are not meeting our affordable housing requirement. And there's something that tells me, if you're gonna allow higher density, is it economically feasible to require slightly higher uh, affordable housing units? To me, that is something that I see missing in the overlay district. Uh, the other 
point is, I think there were comments from the public that makes sense to me, but maybe it's not specific to the overlay district. I think state law kind of governs it. But if you're gonna really fill up a site and there happens to be existing, you know, low um, moderate income units, it seems like there should be a requirement. I think it's already state law, but maybe explicitly in our zoning ordinance that you, you've got to replace those units. You know, and it's not, it's not, it's over and above your inclusionary requirement. So I have a concern that, you know, we increase density, but we're not addressing the affordable housing dilemma. And maybe the overlay districts can be that extra incentive to achieve that. So that's kind of my general comments about overlay district. You know, I like the idea, but it seems like there needs to be some greater public good that's achieved with the overlay district, not just increasing number of units. Because um, I am concerned they're not going to be affordable or feel would be. Uh, the other specific questions related, first of all, I really like that you're doing a lot of cleanup to the zoning ordinance to comply with state law. I think staff did an excellent job of really outlining those items. You know, probably long overdue, they needed to be done, clean up to meet with state law. So that's good. Uh, I did have one question regarding the shared living. I was looking at like one of the charts, I think exhibit two, you show that shared living would be allowed in the M districts. I wonder if that was really intended. My, my understanding is that shared living or group homes under six, you, you, you're required to allow them in residential districts but I don't recall that they are outright permitted in, in the M districts. So I would take a look at that and maybe they should not be allowed in the M districts because I'm concerned about introducing residential uses that might conflict with, with some, um, you know, if there's manufacturing or some industrial uses. And then the only other comment regarding assembly uses, I saw that there's a term religious assembly to, to, to replace churches. And I understand that that's RLUPA. Um, I guess my question is, are we clear that assembly uses that are non-religious have all the same land use um, requirements as religious assembly? In some cities I see, they just eliminate the term religious and just come up with a, a generic uh, assembly to avoid the perception that somehow there's still a difference between religious assembly and non-religious assembly. So I just kind of raise that question. Otherwise, uh, I, th I think the general plan uh, report was, was ni nice and concise. The housing element summary was good. Uh, I do agree about the density bonus item that board member Teague raised. You know, I, I think the report cuts, kind of dismisses I'm looking at the density bonus uh, ordinance and the, the more we can maybe slightly tweak it to increase the number of affordable housing units, um, what, what I would favor that. And I'm not sure exactly how that would be achieved, but that's, those are my comments. Uh, I, th I think it's, staff's done an excellent job thinking through uh, you know, a whole assortment of issues. And I appreciate the thought that staff has put into it. So it looked clearly it was a team effort. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Vice President Ruiz. Um, first of all, I apologize. Um, I had some technical difficulties and was kicked off of the meeting for a little while and missed some of the public uh, 
speaker's comments as well as the beginning of uh, board member T's comments. And I will go back and review the, the recordings. Um, so with that said, um, thank you for the thorough presentation. And I come from the point where I wish we are, we as a community, we're not here to pitch one personal interest against another person's interest, but do what is best for our community. Currently, we do have a housing shortage. Um, a healthy apartment vacancy rate is 3%. And if we only have approximately 150 vacant units for rent out of our 16,000 apartment stock, we're less than 1%. That is a shortage that we need to address. And um, I, in term, I'm also very concerned about um, fair housing. Um, I agree with Karen Bay, and this hits me very personal as well, um, because I understand what it's like not to have a place to live. Um, so with that said, from a practitioner standpoint, I would say, you know, revising the zoning code is probably more straightforward and more equitably um, provide housing through all neighborhoods to those who are in need than um, using the overlay approach. And um, that would say, especially when we were looking at the overlay zone, um, we specifically exclude um, certain modes of transportation because of a current status. And as things we get start to get back to the um, new normal, more people are going back onto public transport, pu trans use public transportation, ferry and um, other bus lines may increase service. So at what point do we revisit that overlay boundary? I feel that approach can be a little bit cumbersome and less flexible for future changes. Um, so that, just something in the back of my mind. Um, as we look into upzoning um, our art districts, I also want to caution us of um, any unintended consequence. If we increase the density too fast and not having any safeguard, we can potentially create overcrowding and extra, you know, extremely small units that. Um, compromises the quality of life. So that is a fine balance that we need to be mindful of. Um, getting a little bit more, uh, so for example, going back about um, looking at the density, um, eliminating density altogether, um, and just going by FAR or height and um, bulk limitations and setbacks. I think San Diego is moving towards that direction. They have several projects that's already constructed under their um, commu complete community guidelines. I think that would be a good um, city's kind of look at how how they're doing with all those new projects that's coming up, um, eliminating density altogether. Um, so getting a little bit more specific on um, exhibit. Uh, first of all, I don't have any comments on the general plan reporting. So thank you for that, um, the, the progress report. But getting specifically on exhibit four, I too agree with board member T's comments. I really 
um, find it troublesome to tie the definition of dwelling with kitchen. Specifically, when we didn't even allow um, define kitchen in our, I, I know this sounds a little ridiculous, but we did not, there's no definition in our um, zoning code what a kitchen is. So can we do a kitchenette? Is that a bailout? Is that a way to circumvent that definition? Or I just feel like, you know, tying kitchens to the dwelling is uh, a little bit um, restrictive. And I, I see the effort on trying to clearly define dwelling versus dwelling units. Um, I still, without the side notes on the side, it's still hard for me to decipher the two. So, you know, I think a little more effort needs to be made um, to, to further define those two definitions. It can still be a little bit confusing. Specific question I have um, on page nine of 34 in the PDF on exhibit four. Um, you mentioned that, I'm sorry, I, it's kind of hard for me to go back and forth right now, um, that two dwelling units can be on the same lot, provided that the units do not exceed a thousand square foot. And yet the maximum ADU is 1200. So I wonder why that the main unit is smaller than the ADU what would be allowed an ADU. So I don't know if that's supposed to be a typo. And let me just answer that real quickly. What you're reading sure. on page E49 is um, text from the recently amended R1 district, which is, and it's part of the SB9 amendments that were made by the council just recently. Um, after mm -hmm. much discussion, the council decided that they were gonna limit the SB9 units to 1,000 square feet in size, but leave the second unit limit in place, which is 1,200 square feet. But that will, that that provision only applies in the R1. Did we lose? Right, but, oh, yeah, but this are. doesn't, yeah, I'm still here. It's just, I'm looking at, at the yep. text itself because anyway, because of technical difficulties, I have to go back and forth now. Oh, okay. Um, any new units. Okay, so, but then my question is, why would anybody do that when they can just add an ADU that is more than the SB9 units because an ADU allows you a larger square footage? Um, yes, but there are other limitations on ADUs that don't apply to SB9 units. For example, an ADU can only be one floor under our current ordinance, whereas an SB9 can be two floors. Um, you know, I, it, was, it, was, it was a decision the council made to limit the SB9 units to a thousand square feet. Um, for the reasons that many of you have talked about today, the assumption a smaller unit's gonna be a more affordable unit. But okay. you're right, uh, board member, if it's, if it's a R1 property owner and all they wanna do is add a unit in the backyard, Mm -hmm. um, and they want it to be a larger unit, then they're going to do an S, they're going to be, you know, if they want to go over a thousand feet, then they're, the, the approach for them would be the ADU ordinance, not the SB9 ordinance. If they want to okay. maximize the number of units to try to do four units on the lot, 
they can't do it with just SB9. I mean, with a second unit ordinance, they need to use a combination of second units and SB9 units to get to four units. So, um, right. and, so in that scenario, but, the SB9 units would be smaller than the ADUs in floor area, potentially. Okay, okay. thank you. Um, I mean, I, I understand. Thank you. I appreciate the, the um, response. Um, and then the other question I have is similar to what board member Hom had mentioned regarding religious assemblies. And I wonder from looking at another part of this, is it religious assemblies or is it religious facilities? So does it have to be assembly use? That's a question. Yeah, I, I think I, staff. I, go ahead. No, I think I think we should go back and look at that. I mean, we we wanted to get away from the term churches, which is in the code today, because obviously there are okay. other religions. Um, we came up with religious assembly, um, but I think uh, Board Member Homs' point is a really good one. We should think about it from a land use perspective, not a religious perspective. <laughs> what assembly uses, and then we might end up adding a definition for assembly uses and just be really clear in the definition. That includes things like Kiwana's club facility, a church, uh, um, you know, um, any kind of um, a place where people come periodically in large groups for various reasons. Um, yeah, those are. Okay. Yeah, I have a similar question. And then um, I noticed that Schools and religious facilities are not permitted in R5, or did I miss that? On page 27 or 40 of 34, I don't see schools in that, and I don't know if that's intentional. Uh, we'll, we'll take a look. I don't think that was intentional. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that so schools and religious facilities were left out assembly. of R five. Yeah, we'll have to. Yeah, we may. It looks like it, Heather. It looks like we dropped it in the conditional use permit section. We'll take a look at that. Okay, I'm trying to. I'm trying to find the spot, but. Yeah, I, I've, I'm, I see it. Um, it. It just seems to be missing. It's an interesting. I don't know why. I wonder if it was yeah. ever there. Because if it's allowed in the lower density, it should be allowed in higher density. Oh, that's probably what happened. Because the, the current code is a tiered thing. Like everything that's in R2 is allowed in R3 and everything's in a tiers up. And we're trying to break that down. So I think in the process of having each district as a standalone, we may have dropped Oh, actually, can I say it's in it's in item nine on, um, on page twenty seven. Oh, is, I see that now. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's just kind of the formatting is a little confusing. That all of a sudden we changed it. Oh, right, there it so, is. So, yeah, no, <laughs> it's, it's there. Minimize how much we changed in that line. Yeah. But it is there. Yeah, um, I think at the same time, consistency between zone in different districts, it would be helpful for those who are tracking because yeah. everything else seems similar. So and if, if I may just comment really quickly on something you mentioned and uh, 
Commissioner Teague mentioned. I, I appreciate the comments about the definition, one family, two family, three family, the reliance on, on um, kitchens and why are we doing that? I think really there's two questions that we staff will ask itself first and then the planning board should be asking when we come back with this. Uh, the line of questioning that uh, board member T started, I thought was really valuable. Like, are we inadvertently prohibiting something because it doesn't fit the way we've defined? Because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to treat everybody the same. We're trying to be treat everything equally. So if our definition inadvertently is prohibiting some kind of housing type, we should talk about that and reveal it and decide, is that really what we intended to do? Probably not. Um, the other thing that's going to be complicated for staff, and we just need to think through this, the definition of unit um, serves not just a housing element purpose. It also serves like our um, citywide impact fees, like, you know, that ordinance says you have to pay per unit. So you have to define, well, what's a unit? So it just, the definition of unit is, is, we, we, we can go back and look at that. Um, we just we just need to be careful. We're in by adjusting a definition for the purposes of housing element, we don't inadvertently cause problems for administration of other ordinances that rely on the definition of a unit. It might be an impact fee, it might be something else. Yeah, and I have seen in other jurisdictions where when it's a larger development, they allow for ADUs they don't count ADUs towards the unit count, but they, they allow them, the ADU to count towards affordable housing mm -hmm. if they can be income restricted. So, you know, you get that added unit to boost your, your you, yep. but it doesn't count against you, and yet you get the, um, the low, the, you know, affordable housing that you're looking for. So that can be another tool that we can use. As well, there's not that many presidents, um, but I've seen them. We are, you will see when we release our new housing element, we're relying on a study that was performed by ABAG for the East Bay cities. Very interesting. They surveyed accessory dwelling units in East Bay cities to find out like, what are people actually paying for this? Um, and what they found is that you can really the affordability breaks down 30% very low, 30% low, 30% moderate, and 10% above moderate. And you, despite the fact there were no deed restrictions, mm -hmm. you might think, what the heck? That, that makes no sense. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that most, a lot of East Bay cities, there's many people building second units and they're not charging rent. It's for a child or it's for a mother-in-law or it's you know so effectively um, what ABAG was trying to show to HCD in the East Bay cities is just the mere fact that you're allowing these accessory dwelling units to be built you are even without deed restrictions you're providing an important source of low-income housing because there are people like mother-in-laws and and recent graduate kids coming right back from college who still need housing. And exactly. if you want to give them the unit for free, that's great. <laughs> and cities should get credit. That's the other point that ABAG's trying exactly. to make to HD. You should give these East Bay cities credit, even though there's not deed restricted. 30% of them probably are serving very low income because there's no rent at all. Mm -hmm. 
And then um, I can also, you know, in terms of open space, and I know that it's already a significant reduction from what was already, what was in the um, current zoning code, I can support a further reduction in um, R5, you know, higher density zones um, to about 100 for market rate and um, 75 for affordable. Um, mm -hmm. And they can have a choice of either common or private open space. At least that's what I'm seeing in the, in the urban infill projects right now. 100 so to 75 just, square feet? 100 for market rate and then 75, um, 75 for affordable. Um, again, this is more for urban and higher density products. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm seeing right now. So um, that that's my comments. Thank you. Thank you, Board Member Rothenberg. Thank you. All, all the comments were very provo provocative and really it was so comprehensive there isn't much to add but i just have have a few observations um so generally i i thought that um board member cisneros in, in terms of option your question about option one or option two i'm not sure if it's a um if if hybrids couldn't be considered but i thought that board member cisneros and board member uh, vice president ruiz made some good points about being particular and specific about zoning for the reasons they enumerated and for the reasons pointed out by the Preservation Society in terms of the changing nature of transit, as well as the provision of, of, of equity across all neighborhoods. Um, but what struck me about the discussion had reminded me of, of how our building codes are written. You know, they're either prescriptive, very, very specific and prescriptive. You can do this and then you can do this and this is how you do it. Or they're performance-based. And now we're seeing more hybrids. So I think as you rethink it, option one is really prescriptive way of planning. And option two is really looking for a result without prescribing exactly how by the criteria that you set forth. And so I think in, in my reading, it's, either there's an opportunity for a, a hybrid or you should be as specific and particular as possible. And when we, when we draw codes and regulations, of course, the more particular and specific you are, the more limited you are about what you adopted. So what is the benefit of that to um, board member Teek's comments about, about your general plan report, which I, I don't have any salient um, comments about the general plan report, but he made some interesting comments about not limiting yourself by making those particular references. But on the other hand, if it's something that you want to do and you're going to do it, why not be particular and um, specific about it? So I would say option one, I think probably applies more to the mission of what you're trying to accomplish, at least as I heard it, unless there's a way to in incorporate the overlays such that you, you're not a penny wise and a pound foolish about only developing what's already developed. Um, in, in regard to um, the, my, my prior comment, I would say if, if you're offering the city council option an option one and an option two, why not extend the reference to the building codes in regard to the separation um, 
reference in the in the building code. And then thirdly, I mentioned this before in your design standards, which I don't take exception to it. It, it seemed very straightforward, except for number seventeen, which could probably be expanded slightly. It's it's a bit picayune, but this is something that actually is important. And alterations to chimneys for seismic safety or fire safety purposes as determined by a licensed contractor or an engineer, you could say a licensed contractor or professional architect or engineer provided, and then go on, you have a proviso, none of the chimney is visible as part of an exterior wall or a character defining feature because the fire safety of chimneys, I would, I would venture is just as important as those bricks that you can see at the top is what's inside the walls. And there's a lot of not unsafe chimneys around. And besides that, I think the comments are just excellent and I look forward to um, the next round. Thank you. Thank you, Laura Rothenberg. Uh, yeah, since we've already gone through pretty exhaustive comments from all um, the board members, my fellow board members, I really don't have too much more to add. I would just say that um, specific to the overlay district, um, I'd just like to reinforce that I think that's a really valuable way to look at density and, and transit-oriented development. Makes a lot of sense to what earlier board member Curtis was describing as how, how do you manage the growth and population and you know, it, it's important to, to link that with, with transit, which, which is critical and, and new transit routes could grow. And I think um, similar to what some, uh, uh, someone in the public had said, specific to looking at Bay Farm as well. And I know we have some commercial districts in Bay Farm. I, I also heard that the hotel that we approved next to the ferry terminal is now thinking of um, going to multifamily if they can because um, they're not quite sure hotel will work in, in the environment that we're in. So I don't know what level of um, opportunity we've, we, we're affording to uh, potentially, you know, manipulate the zoning case by case or, or even in, in areas that are underutilized um, that are commercial districts and make a more mixed use. Uh, but I think it's some, um, things that we should definitely look at. And I, and I think that opportunity on Bay Farm definitely exists and probably in other places as well. So I know we're looking at it as far as shopping centers go and developing a mixed use um, zoning uh, standard to, to allow for um, more than just um, commercial activity on those sites. And I think we should broaden our horizon and think of that as, as far as um, some of the other locations we have within Alameda. So I would just say to continue to expand that um, purview. And, and those are my comments. Okay. Um, is there any, uh, if I, I think Andrew, um, we've gone through the workshop. Yes. Any, any last comments from? No, from, just, from I just want to thank, I want to thank. Um, well, I want to thank Heather and Brian <laughs> staff who helped put this together, um, as well as Henry Dong and David Sablon, and of course, Alan Tai um, and Deirdre um, McCartney, um, the all six staff 
of us have all put a lot of work in this and we still have a lot of work to do clearly. Um, but I think, you know, tonight was very, very helpful. The planning board's comments, um, uh, just, I mean, I've got a ton of notes here and just as you've all been talking, you know, I'm like, oh yeah, we can do that. We can combine these things. We can adjust this. This, I mean, I think we've really, you've really helped us move the ball in the last two hours. Um, we are going to make the changes to the annual report, um, especially to that residential section. I, I think, um, you know, board member Tom brought it to our attention. We had sort of, we had some old language in there that we wanted to fix. And then uh, uh, board member Teague, I think had excellent suggestions. How we're going to handle the residential districts. I think, you know, we still have work to do. I think in the end report, we need to indicate the kind of work we're thinking about, but we don't need to prescribe where we're going to end up because we frankly don't know yet. Um, so I, I, we'll make those changes before we send it to the state. Those are really helpful. Um, just finally, I just, uh, as I said at the beginning, um, we, uh, at your next meeting, and just for the members of the public who are interested in this housing element thing, um, at the next meeting in two weeks, we're gonna bring back the Park Street and Webster Street. So this will be the second time you've looked at that one. We're just kind of continuing to refine our thinking. Waba and Pisba are refining their thinking. We do another workshop on that at the, that'll be the second meeting in March. And then I think we're gonna have to, we're gonna be forced by the schedule to take a break from the zoning and shift back to the housing element. April 1st, we hope to be releasing our final draft, complete draft, all appendices, all analyses required under state law. Um, the, uh, it is going through a final technical review right now by our housing consultants. Um, I want to apologize to Chris Buckley and AAPS and everyone else for, as he said, constantly moving the um, goalposts. That is not intentional. That is just a reflection of how fast and how quickly everything is moving here. We are, you know, being, you know, the the the, the 15 to 30 percent buffer under state HCD guidelines that we hadn't been thinking a lot about that a little bit, but not as much. It was really brought to our attention very recently, like, hey, wait a second, guys, you need to get yourself up close to around 20% buffer if you expect to get past HCD. So that's why we made a big point of it in tonight's presentation. Um, we're a lot of information coming in, a lot of information going out. Um, we've tried to make this whole process as transparent and open as possible, just sharing work products as we go. So the downside of that is um, the products do change quickly and frequently. Um, so um, we will release on April 1st a, a draft housing element for public review. That'll kick off a 30-day public review period. Um, we hope to have workshops with the planning board in late April and council in early May um, for one last look um, and then send it off to HCD and see what they say. While HCD is reviewing it, we will bring all these zoning amendments that we've been reviewing with you for the last three months. We'll bring them all back, probably in large package so that you can see how we've revised them per your comments and also to give you and the planning board and the public an opportunity. While we're waiting for HCD to review our housing element, we will continue working with the public and the planning board on the zoning amendments. Um, so we still have a lot of work to do. It's gonna be a really busy year, um, but that's, um, that's uh, the requirement under state law. So, and we have a good team working on it and with the planning board's excellent review, I'm sure we're gonna be fine. Thank you so much for all your work tonight.
that Thank you, Andrew. we're all set for now. Okay. <laughs> I think you covered, it was a good segue. We didn't have any minutes to review as the next item and you went into staff communications. So I think you've, you, you just covered that in the, unless there's anything else to add on, on, uh, an oral report on future public meetings, but I, I think you covered it. So thank you for doing that. Um, written communications, I think we received all those. Um, board communications, uh, board members may ask a question for clarification, make a brief announcement or brief report on his or her activities. Uh, I just wanted to, I'll just start. I, um, I won't be able to attend the next uh, planning board meeting in two weeks, so uh, I'll be traveling. So um, I, I will miss that just to let you all know. Uh, I don't know if anyone else had, uh, I see Vice President Reese, you have your hand raised. Yeah, I may have a conflict as well. <laughs> so, um, but I'll finalize okay. the schedule and work with Andrew on that. Um, and then, um, Question, um, do we know when we're going back in person meetings? Um, we don't know yet. Um, essentially, we're waiting for the council to decide when they're going back in person um, and also waiting for uh, staff to be able to get the technology so that we can run a really successful in-person but hybrid meeting so that the public can still participate um, remotely if they wish. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I, thank you. Yeah. That's what I would, I was going to ask to, to allow, um, public to participate teleconference, you know, through via teleconference, um, because that seems to encourage, um, increase the particip participation. That's, that's true. We've seen participation in city council meetings and planning board meetings go up giving the people the, giving people the opportunity to do it remotely. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, lastly, oral communication, anyone may address the board on a topic that was not on our agenda. Uh, if you'd like, please raise your hand. Do we have any President Sahara, you, you, you missed somebody. Oh, did I? I went from board communications to oral communications. And I was just- uh, oh, say, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't see your hand raised, sorry. Yeah, sorry. it probably blends with the background. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, uh, I think I'm also out April 11th, not the next board meeting, but the subsequent. Um, well, so for next meeting, it's, we're gonna, we're gonna, uh, the President and the vice president will both be out. Is that right? But we might, the other five might be here for that second meeting in March. So that's the quorum. And then the following meeting, uh, board members.